Mayor, we're ready here. Okay, did you get everyone in? I was getting a report of someone who couldn't get in, and I, but there's so many people on right now, I can't tell. You've got to uh, get everybody, everybody that's that's tried to get in is in now. Okay, um, all right. Um, welcome everyone to the Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022 City Commission meeting. Um, first, we will have some words from Porter Arneal on how our meeting will go. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everyone. I just have a few housekeeping items for this Zoom meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking. The chat function for the meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. Please remember to state your name each time you speak for the benefit of those participating remotely. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. Now I'll turn the meeting back over to Mayor Shipley. Thank you, Porter. Um, uh, Mayor Shipley, now we'll let Sherry do her explanations and then we'll do roll. <clears throat> Thank you, Mayor. Um, just a few procedural reminders since we're still doing the virtual meeting. Please remember to state your name and title each time you speak. Um, that's for commissioners, staff, and any presenters. When a motion is made, the mayor will call on commissioners individually to provide their vote, then announce whether the motion carried and the count of the vote. When the mayor calls for in-person public comment, individuals should raise their hand to indicate they wish to speak. The staff present will direct you to the podium to speak following uh, social distancing and safety protocols, please state your name before speaking and comments will be limited to three minutes. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. The raise hand function may appear in different places on your Zoom menu, depending on the device you are using and which version of Zoom you have. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. When you are called on, please unmute and state your name. And again, comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, Vice Mayor Shipley, uh, let's go ahead and do a roll. Vice Mayor Larson. Here. Uh, Commissioner Finkeldye. Here. Commissioner Littlejohn. Here. Commissioner Sellers. Present. Mayor Shipley, I made it. Um, Let's go ahead and approve the agenda. The city commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Um, are there any uh, requests to reorder from the commission? Commissioner Finkel, I move to approve the agenda. Vice Mayor Larson, second. Mayor Shipley, I have a first and a second. Commissioner Finkel, aye. Uh, Vice Mayor Larson. Aye. Commissioner Littlejohn. Aye. Commissioner Sellers. Aye. Mayor Shipley, aye. That passes five to zero. 
Uh, next, we have a number of proclamations. Uh, the first is to proclaim April 2nd through 8th, 2022, the week of the young child. And I believe we have uh, Jeremy Fight here to say a few words before I read the proclamation. Jeremy Fight, I am Executive Director of Hilltop Child Development Center, hello. Uh, and also the President of the Kansas Association for the Education of Young Children, Lawrence Chapter. And I just wanna thank all of you for supporting the Week of the Young Child. This is a national initiative um, to really celebrate the people birth to eight years of age as we've learned over the last two years, the significance of the work that is done with these young people um, and the significance of the brain development and as our education system develops, the importance of what we do on a daily basis for the thousands of kids here in the Lawrence and Douglas County area. So I just wanna thank everyone for uh, the mayor's office for uh, declaring this proclamation and supporting the week of the young child, April 2nd through 8th. So thank you. Mayor Shipley, thank you. Um, we'll go ahead and read this proclamation then. Um, whereas the Lawrence chapter KSAEYC in conjunction with the Kansas Association for Education of Young Children KSAEYC and the National Association for the Education of Young Children NAEYC focus on spreading awareness of the importance of early childhood education in Douglas County and whereas the first year of a child's life are the period of the most rapid brain development and lay the foundation for all future learning. And whereas there are 7,200 children birth through age six in our county, and 77% of children in Kansas have all available parents in the workforce. And whereas participation in high quality early childhood education saves taxpayer dollars, makes working families more economically secure, and prepares children to succeed in school, earn higher wages, and live healthier lives. And whereas at the same time, the cost of one year of child care for an infant in Kansas averages $13,000 and $8,700 for a 40-year-old, and the majority of these costs, which often exceed the cost of a year of college tuition, are borne by parents who often cannot afford it. And whereas young children need skilled, educated, consistent, and compensated early childhood educators who ensure that children supported by families have the early experiences they need for a strong foundation. And whereas working families need sufficient high quality childcare spaces beginning at birth to be available in the community and need robust subsidies, scholarships, and tax credits for families at all income levels that support the true cost of quality early childcare education. And whereas we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the week of the young child so that we can continue to recognize in advance the early childhood education profession. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim April 2nd through 8th, 2022, as Week of the Young Child, and commit to investments that stabilize, sustain, and support child care and early learning, so this essential workforce can continue to support children, families, and our economy through the pandemic crisis, recovery, and beyond. Thank you so much. Um, next, uh, we will proclaim the month of April 2022 as Mathematics and Statistics Aware Awareness Month. Um, and we do have a speaker, but I think she'd like to speak after I give the proclamation, but I'll check. This is uh, Professor Margaret Bayer. Yes. 
Yes, that's fine. Okay. All right. Whereas mathematics is the foundation of discipline for science and technology and mathematical reasoning, analysis and problem solving are increasingly vital in preparing our youth to, learn, to lead productive and responsible lives. And whereas mathematics is a living and growing discipline continually being created and discovered. The power of mathematics is revealed in the richness and beauty of its intellectual structure and the diversity of its applications to almost every field of human endeavor. And whereas the beauty, challenge, and excitement of mathematics and its potential to enrich individual lives require that through mathematics education, we make its opportunities available to all our citizens. And whereas the Joint Policy Board for Mathematics, a joint venture of the American Mathematical Society, the Mathematical Association of America, and the Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics was established to articulate and advocate sound public policy concerning the mathematical sciences and the field's ability to contribute to the public welfare. And whereas the Department of Mathematics of the University of Kansas is dedicated to the creation, application, and teaching of mathematics and to serving the mathematical needs of the community. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim the month of April 2022 as Mathematics and Statistics Awareness Month to be observed in schools in the city of Lawrence in recognition of the importance of mathematics and mathematics education. Thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. Um, Professor, please uh, speak. Yes, hello, I'm, I'm Professor Bayer from uh, the Mathematics Department at KU. Uh, Mathematics and Statistics Awareness Month has evolved, originating as Mathematics Awareness Month in 1986. It started at KU even earlier in 1984. It is a time to increase the understanding and appreciation of mathematics and statistics. We hope to convey to all, but especially to children, that mathematics is interesting, fascinating, even magical, and sometimes mysterious. Follow Mathematics and Statistics Awareness Month on Facebook and on Twitter, where you will find news, history, puzzles, and problems. The KU Math Department is sponsoring these activities. Saturday, April 2nd, two o'clock in Snow Hall, the KU Math and Statistics Competition for third through 12th graders. Later in the month, a KU student math competition the Russell Brott Undergraduate Colloquium, and workshops for fifth graders the last couple of weeks of April, some of them in person and some of them virtual. Mathematics and statistics are of increasing importance in all walks of life, and we want to expose young people to the value and the joy of mathematics. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Bayer. Um, uh, that's fantastic that you're here to promote that. Uh, certainly throughout the course of our meeting, there will be plenty of mathematics. So thank you. <laughs> uh, Mayor Shipley, we have uh, one more uh, proclamation this week to proclaim March 22nd as the 50th anniversary of the Older Americans Act Nutrition Program. And I will, uh, I think I'll read this uh, proclamation and then um, Monica Gottschammer will uh, speak afterwards, hopefully that's okay. Uh, so here we go. Uh, whereas 50 years ago on March 22nd, 1972,
President Nixon signed into law a measure that amended the Older Americans Act of 1965 to include a national nutrition program for individuals 60 years and older. And whereas for five decades, this landmark law has helped to fund community-based organizations like Meals on Wheels and still is the only federal program designed specifically to meet the nutritional and social needs of older adults. And whereas this year, Meals on Wheels programs from across the country are joining together for the March for Meals Awareness campaign to celebrate 50 years of success and garner the support needed to ensure these critical programs can continue to address food insecurity, malnutrition, combat social isolation, enable independence, and improve health for years to come. And whereas volunteers for Meals on Wheels programs are the backbone of the program, they not only deliver nutritious meals to seniors and individuals with disabilities who are at significant risk of hunger and isolation, but they also provide care, concern, and attention to their welfare. And whereas Meals on Wheels programs in Lawrence deserve recognition for the heroic contributions and essential services they have provided amid the COVID-19 pandemic, and will continue to provide to local communities, to our state, and to our nation long after it is over. And whereas the senior population is increasing substantially and action is needed now to support local Meals on Wheels programs through federal, state, and local funding, volunteering, donations, and raising awareness ensures these vital services can continue to be delivered for another 50 years. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim March 22nd, 2022, as the 50th anniversary of the Older Americans Act Nutrition Program, and urge every community member to take this month to honor our Meals on Wheels programs, the seniors they serve, and the volunteers who care for them. Our recognition of and involvement in the national celebration can enrich our entire community and help combat senior hunger and isolation in America. Um, and that, with that, I would ask Monica uh, if she could come on and speak. Thank you so much for, on behalf of Midland Care, taking this proclamation and for your service later in the week and delivering meals. We appreciate you. And I know that they would love volunteers if anyone's interested. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you for bringing this to us um, and all the work you've done over the years. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Um, now we will move on uh, to the consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on these items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak on an item that's been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Oops. Um, are there any commissioners who would like to remove something from the consent agenda? This is Commissioner Sellers. I'd like to remove C8A. All right, thank you. Uh, any other commissioners? Okay, uh, Sherry, are, are you seeing anyone there in the room who would like to remove something? Um, nothing on the consent agenda you would like pulled to discuss. Uh, no, Mayor. Okay, and online? Uh, yes, Chris Berger. Hi, the uh, the right-of-way 
think it's C7A. Commissioner Finkel, I think it's C8A, which Commissioner Sello has already pulled. Thank you. Great. Sherry, anyone else? Uh, yes, Michael Ullman. Uh, yes, good evening. Uh, C6A. All right, Sherry, anyone else? Uh, Commissioner Littlejohn, I, I think uh, uh, Commissioner Finkeldye was mistaken. There, those are two separate right-of-way things. Um, the C8A is only dealing with uh, Pennsylvania and uh, 8th Street. Uh, C7A, which I think Mr. Berger was trying to pull, was uh, relating to what Enrico Viegas was uh, talking about earlier, I believe, a couple of weeks ago. This, this is Sherry Reedeman, City Clerk. Commissioner Littlejohn, you might want to refresh your agenda. There was a little oh, okay. update okay. that changed the reordering a little bit because an item was under second reading when it should have been under first reading. Gotcha. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Ditto. Thank you. Mayor uh, be good. Uh, Sherry, anyone uh, besides uh, C8A and C6A? Uh, that's it. Great. Okay, then, uh, uh, Mayor Shipley, I would entertain a motion. This is Vice Mayor Larson, and I move to approve the consent agenda with the exceptions of C6A and C8A. Commissioner Sellers, I second. Um, Mayor Shipley, um, I have a first and a second. Vice Mayor Larson? Aye. Commissioner Sellers? Aye. Commissioner Finkelday? Aye. Commissioner Littlejohn? Aye. Mayor Shipley, aye. Um, that passes five to zero. Uh, that brings us to C6A, uh, which I believe was pulled uh, by Michael Allman. Hi, good evening, Mayor Shipley and Commission. My name is Michael Allman. I'm with the Sustainability Action Network. Um, you saw this, well, this is an item to wrap up some payments to the contractor Mega Casey for work done in the sections of the Lawrence Loop, including 29th and Haskell Lane, a raised crossing at, the, at that intersection. And you last saw this at your January 4th meeting. I'd like to share my screen if I could. Will I be able to do that? You can do that now, Michael. Ah, okay, thank you. And this is from your agenda, showing that particular raised crossing at Haskell Lane and 29th Street, where a section of the loop, the, the very challenging section of the loop for the safety of the users uh, was finally completed this past, um, past November. Before paying these last remaining bills to the contractor, I think there's some unfinished business that needs to be addressed first. And I don't know who to, um, you know, account for how this was built improperly out of conformance, in spite of the fact that the city engineer said it would be built 
according to the specifications which you see up here. And the project manager specifically said that both inclines on both sides would be six feet. He stated that clearly in an email. Um, this street, Haskell Lane, is a local street, 25 mile an hour speed limit. I know for a fact, and don't ask me how I know, but cars can go over this race crossing at 35 miles an hour, possibly more. Um, in other words, something that is supposed to be slowing the traffic for the safety of the loop users actually allows them to go beyond the speed limit of the street. I think somebody needs to be held accountable for this. I don't know if it's the contractor who built it incorrectly or if the city uh, engineer and project manager didn't give proper instructions. I can't say. I would like to see an investigation and some accountability, some report as how this was built out of conformance and what can be done to correct it before we pay these final bills. And that's my request. So I hope to have it. Oh, I'd like to mention, I noticed that there are parks and recreation officials at the meeting tonight. Hi. They might have some uh, something to say about this because I know they're concerned too. Thank you. Uh, Mayor Shipley, uh, we will be sure that um, commissioners don't have any questions or comments at this time, and then we'll go to comment, public comment. This is Vice Mayor Larson. Could somebody from staff uh, speak to this, please? Good evening, Commission. This is Jake Baldwin, Engineering Program Manager. Um, I could be happy to answer any questions on here. And I'd begin, um, uh, Porter, would I be able to share screens briefly? Yes. Okay, so if you're, you're seeing my screen, what you're seeing are um, excerpts from our design plan uh, completed by our consulting engineer. Um, these are the, the, the profile and the uh, plan view of the improvements there. They were built to plan uh, by the contractor uh, based off of that uh, standard detail that uh, Mr. Almond showed earlier. It is a, a, a standard detail. It can't be a, a built exactly in every situation again. Um, I think I, I may have touched briefly back in January about the grade of the road here um, in a, the uh, proximity to the intersection. Um, so we've got some uh, profile grade to deal with. So uh, immediately your standard detail cannot be built. Um, if you build these to six feet, your percents are gonna be different with the detail um, shows you. So um, essentially we start with that standard detail and apply it to the actual condition in the field and the grade that uh, you encounter here. So um, with that, if there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer. Yeah, this is Vice Mayor Larson. So Jake, are you indicating that um, in order to get the slope that you needed, according to the specs that you had to extend out the apron, I guess you would call it potentially? Um, Jake Baldwin, engineering program manager. Yes, there were some pavement joints out there that made more sense to match into, uh, in addition to drainage considerations being on the, the return of the curb at the intersection. Um, thank you. Vice Mayor Larson again. So is this, um, how, how unusual is it that, or usual maybe is it that 
fact, we have to modify that like in the field when we actually see the, the, the measurements um, based on field conditions. Um, I'd say, uh, again, Jake Bald, an engineering program manager, that every one of these raised crossings we do is going to be modified from that standard detail at some point, just because that standard detail pretends you're in a completely horizontal world. So something's going to have to give as soon as you uh, diverge from that horizontal. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. One more question, uh, Vice Mayor Larson. So the the contractor built it to specifications in accordance with what the city wanted. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. That's what I was trying to display with the, the plans there on the screen. Uh, any other commissioner questions? Um, let's go ahead and go to public comment. Uh, Sherry, I'm, again, I'm going to let you find all the people because there's a lot of them here today and I can't see all of them. Okay. Is there anyone in the room that wants to comment on this item? Okay, go no, right. No, no, no. Not on this item. Yeah. Okay. Chris Flowers. Uh Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers, and I didn't come here to talk about this to begin with, but just when um, Michael was talking, he talked about going, that someone could go over the bump at 35, I believe. I'm just questioning that because if it's what I'm thinking of, it's at 29th and Haskell, that little street. But it's right before an intersection where you can't go straight through, I think. I think there's some factory um like directly north of the street because i i use this street when i deliver to praxair and i go down 31st i think and then take that street up but how would you go 35 over that if it's right before you have to like turn left or turn right i mean you'd slow down anyway and if you're turning off of um 29th you'd have to um hit the gas right away to get up to 35 because if i'm if i'm remembering it it right it's right before you have to turn like or it or if you're just turning off 29th onto high school lane that you'd have to just really floor it to get up to that speed so i mean i don't know about the rest but i'm just it's not i just want to make sure y'all know it's not like the raised crosswalk on 19th where it's out in the middle and then you don't have where you can just go straight through for a while so that those speeds are going to be different than one where it's right before you have to turn thank you Uh, I don't think anyone else wants to provide comment on this item, Mayor. All right, Mayor Shibley, uh, commissioners, any discussion or questions? I, I, I might go ahead and ask Jake a question. Um, uh, just generally, if something is misdesigned uh, by a contractor, what happens? Uh, Jake Baldwin, engineering program manager. Uh, uh, do you mean miss mean yes, constructed incorrectly? Yes, thank you. Executed. Yeah. Sure. Yes. If the contractor were to not construct that correctly, then we would have the means to have them go back and fix that. Typically, we catch those items during construction, but we also have the the one year warranty to go back and look at those things as well as something that may have um, deteriorated or 
falling apart. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't ride, I don't ride a bike. Um, but I know Commissioner Larson does, and and I'm, I know she gets around, so I'm presuming she might have gone through this. I just, um, I, I hear different things, and some of it's anecdotal. I just, um, I just want people to be safe, and and we all know that there. Are, different styles of speed bumps or crossings all over town and and we're trying to get um uh more uniformity and clarity in that but i, I do want to make sure that this is a safe crossing because it isn't just about activities it, it's also for transportation so i don't know vice mayor do you, do you have any thoughts here <laughs> Well, for, for me, this is an issue of whether or not it was it was properly built to the plan that was designed. <clears throat> and since Jake's indicating that it was, I don't see how we could deny them payment for it. Now, there, the other issue, potential issue or, or, um, that was brought up was whether or not it's a safe crossing. I, for me, that's not the issue on this item. It's whether or not they built it a plan they did so we can't deny them. I don't think we can deny them the money for it. So I'm going to uh, vote yes for it. Uh, thank you for, for that. I appreciate it. Um, Mayor Shipley, are there any um, uh, motions? I'll go ahead and make the motion. Um, Approve cumulative change orders to the Lawrence Loop, 11th, 9th Street, and 29th Street project from Mega KC Corporation in the amount of $68,060.74, increasing the total contract amount to $800,020.74, and amending the FY 2022 to 2026 CIP to transfer funds from the sidewalk bike pedestrian improvements project MS228000 to cover the to cover the cut overages uh, related to field conditions. Commissioner Finkel, I second. Mayor Shipley, I have a first and a second. Vice Mayor Larson. Aye. Commissioner Finkel, aye. Aye. Commissioner Littlejohn. Aye. Commissioner Sellers. Aye. Mayor Shipley, aye. Um, our next item, uh, that was pulled from consent is C8A. Um, Commissioner uh, Sellers pulled that. Sorry, I spoke too quickly and didn't hit me fast enough. Um, yes, I, I wanted to talk. I know we spoke about this and we had the three deliverables that were outlined in the memo um, by Enrico. Um, but I did have some concerns. I know we received some uh, public comment, but I had some concerns. Um, one in particular with the language around the defined term of minor excavation. And so um, just wanted to um, talk a little bit more with Enrico on that. Um, seeing that this is a regulation and with defined terms that really makes me nervous when we have language in it that could be leaning either way and it feels like there's some left up to, you know, the defined term has context in it that leaves it up to interpretation 
uh, with, with the language in there uh, as regards to case-by-case -case basis. And so, um, Enrico, I know in the original discussions um, that were brought up, um, there was talk about using, I know I brought up the footage situation as far as what determines minor um, excavation and in doing just some light research on um, municipalities and localities that define minor and major excavation. Could you explain how um, you got to the defined term, the definition for minor excavation and just to, just to get some, some ground, some foundation to the, to the conversation this evening? Sure, uh, Enrico Viegas, uh, project manager. Uh, so the, the definition uh, came about I'm really trying to look at this holistically because the definition would be applied to um, the right, all right-of-way users. And so uh, the flexibility of having the, uh, the case by case kind of listed in that um, was to uh, help staff make those uh, um, administrative uh, discretionary calls. Um, so in particular, uh, say for, uh, um, for example, the, uh, uh, a green industry contractor needed to use a, a mini excavator to install a, um, a stone retaining wall piece or something like that, um, then that would be permissible under this definition. Now, if a, um, a utility company wanted to um, open cut the entire right-of-way frontage um, to either replace or install some type of facility, um, then that would be seen as not minor and we'd want a separate permit for that. And so this uh, under the, the class four um, is kind of the, the blanket permit. And so for any of those like minor things that a green industry contractor would be doing, um, you know, a mini excavator or something like that, then that would be uh, permissible. Um, but we really need to uh, be mindful of of uh, the utility companies out there that could, or any heavy uh, construction contractor that wants to then try to open cut something where, you know, we'd need to look at it for proper shoring, whether they're stabilizing it, uh, any impacts of traffic or anything like that. Um, so that, that was kind of the, the context behind it, um, where that was coming from. This is Commissioner Sellers. Thank you, Enrico. So the, so the, the the definition was formed not necessarily based on the depth or grade of which that which excavation is being done, but it's based on equipment. This is Enrico Villegas. This is Enrico Villegas, project manager. Um, more or less, the uh, uh, like the means and method um, by which it would be done. And so I, I was a little leery of using a depth in there um, because then it could come into question, well, how'd you come up with one foot versus using three or something like that? Um, so I really wanted to uh, avoid that. Uh, but yeah, it's more focusing on like the, the scope of um, how the contractor performs their work. And so for green industry contractors, you know, um, they'll utilize a, like vibratory blades to either pull pipe or uh, make simple bore runs under a sidewalk or something like that. Uh, and so keeping that in context and also knowing, um, say like what our utility providers do, sometimes use like an auger or something like that. 
to help stabilize a pole, then that's okay. Um, but kind of thinking about the bigger things of what would we not want to fall under the minor excavation was was really kind of what shaped that uh, definition. Okay. And this is Commissioner Sellers again, one more question before we open it to public comment. So then we don't define major excavation. So am I to, I don't want to say assume, but by de facto, by a major excavation is everything that a minor excavation is not with the same caveat of a case by case basis? This is Enrico Viegas, project manager. Um, yeah, I, I guess that would be implied um, that if it weren't minor, um, then it would be, uh, then it would be major, but because um, it always trying to uh, look at this on a, on a case by case basis, I mean, it, it's kind of, it's hard to uh, capture everything. Thank you. This is Commissioner Sellers. Thank you. I, I, I almost waved my hand because the light went out on you and I thought waving my hand would turn the light out on you. So sorry. <laughs> so I caught myself. But yeah, we can. I, I do have some thoughts around that, but I will yield my time uh, for public comment. Mayor Shipley, I want to make sure other commissioners don't have some. I see uh, Vice Mayor Larkin. Yeah. yeah, I just saw Randy Larkin on a second ago. Did he did he want to say something about the definitions? This is Randy Larkin, uh, Deputy City Attorney. Um, I just wanted to clarify and go back to the original, what the original idea was when this was done, I don't know, a couple of years ago. Basically anything that was major was anything that cut the pavement. Anything that was minor was something that did not cut the pavement because that's what we were mostly concerned about. And there were some other things perhaps then that was discussed that might be major that don't involve the cutting of the pavement, but I just wanted to give that background for it. That's really what we were most concerned about and degradation of uh, pavement and the cost of the city having to replace it after it's been cut and those types of things. So anyway, I just wanted to add that. Uh, Mayor Shibley, I wanna make sure there's no other uh, commissioner uh, questions before we go on to comment. Okay, um, I'm gonna go ahead and let, um, Sherry, uh, call the commenters for me. <clears throat> Do either of you want to comment on this current item? Okay. Chris Berger. Hi. Um, just have grown more and more sanguine over this whole process. And, and we've been doing this since August. There are three things I think that everyone has, or we've tried to address. One of them is protecting homeowners from, you know, arbitrary exercises of, well, we decide this applies to you. And there's been some effort made by the city to do that. The commission though has directed more to be done. And honestly, the city has ignored you, most specifically about liens and judgments and direction was given to staff to go ahead and make it so that this would not be the basis of a lien or a judgment against somebody's property. And that's been ignored multiple times. You know, those are the two fundamental things that I've been concerned with. And I think that the contractors in town have asked to have some clarity. And quite honestly, again, it's only gotten worse. So 
this is this is a set of ordinances, and Randy kind of alluded to it, that really is not meant to apply to anything that is being applied to right now. And you know, I would just ask you to ask the question. They're still leaving the bonding requirement in, and they're still leaving in the requirement that anyone who gets a contract is obligated to open their personal financial records to the city for audit. None of that's been deleted or removed. And really, I don't think that it's, I'm saying this to make it applicable, but just to show that this is a, you know, a size four shoe and they're trying to get a size 14 foot into it. They need to do something entirely different. We've been trying for nine months longer and it simply hasn't, hasn't worked. I thank the commissioners. You guys are trying, you're being ignored and uh, the requests have not been complex. Thank you. Bobby Flory. Good evening. Um, I submitted a letter to the commission and I originally had not planned on speaking as it is a consent agenda item, but my letter was a couple minutes past the deadline. So I emailed it to everyone directly, but did want to make sure that I went on record saying that we um, support the efforts that have been made towards the concerns that we've expressed, but also the one that is still out there is, as Commissioner Sellers brought up, the definition of minor excavation. Um, I appreciate the spirit that um, Randy Larkin mentioned that if it doesn't um, if it doesn't cut into pavement, then it's that's um, considered a minor excavation. I think that definition does need clarity. I included. Uh, it, with my letter, an email response of Enrico that gave the interpretation and his interpretation was acceptable as far as how he viewed the work that the green contractors would do. But, you know, the point is, is that's his interpretation. And it would be nice if that was defined so that we didn't need to pull that um, email out every time and say, see, this is how it was interpreted by city staff at the time that it was passed. Because obviously in this situation, even Enrico's moving on to a different program um, that he's going to be working with. And the next person then will have this definition to try to figure out what we actually accomplished here. So um, while I hate to slow this train down, um, I, I do think there needs to be more clarity on the definition, but do appreciate the work that's been done so far. That's all the public comment, Mayor. All right, thank you, Sherry. Oh, I'm uh, so, oh, sorry, I sorry, I had asked. Go right ahead. Uh, my name is Frank Nail. I'm with Lawrence Landscape, and uh, I think a, a simple uh, definition and uh, would be a, a two foot depth for us uh, doing irrigation, planting street trees, uh, uh, going rarely do we go any deeper than two feet, and and I think that would uh, eliminate the utility contractors trying to uh, circumvent the system or, or uh, use a different uh, different permit than they, they ought to be using. So uh, I offer, offer that um, and I, I think it solves all the problems, but that's just me. So thank you so much for your time, appreciate it. Okay, Mayor, I believe we are done with all the public comments. All right, great. 
Um, let's bring it back to the commission then um, for discussion or clarification. This is um, Vice Mayor Larson. So um, if Randy uh, could uh, pipe in on this as to why we don't have a more definitive definition. Um, seems like what you had indicated, Randy, about concrete cut versus not concrete cut seems pretty straightforward. Is there a reason why we don't codify that? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. There was some discussion of the City Commission that went a little bit beyond just that simple definition last time, and I think Enrico was trying to capture it. I thought he did. Uh, the City Commission would like something done differently, then we can definitely do that. Okay. And then um, Vice Mayor Larson again. So the other question is, could you address some of the issues that um, Chris Berger had brought up regarding the lien and judgments and bonding requirements and so forth? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney again. The only only entities that are required to get a bond are those entities that are placing permanent structures within the right-of-way, which would involve piping or anybody that has an agreement with the city under Chapter 9. If it's a land or homeowner that's under Chapter 8 and has a temporary permit, there is no bond requirement specifically, and there is no provision in the city code where we would place a lien against anybody's property as a result. There's no, there's no, no provision for that. So it can't be done. So that, that's my response. And that was my response last time. All right. Thank you. This is Commissioner Sellers. Enrico, did you have your hand raised before I, before I chime in? Yeah, uh, thank you, uh, Commissioner Sellers. This is Enrico Villegas, uh, project manager. Um, and I, I do want to go back to the, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I would try to avoid the, um, the distinction between just cutting the pavement and then not, because there are instances in construction where you may have to dig, you know, 10 feet deep in order to access a facility. And so in that case, there are additional things that would need to happen in order to make sure that is a safe, like work zone. And so that, I mean, could we perceive that as minor excavation? I, I think in that instance, we would need an additional permit for that. That would involve more a thorough inspection versus just falling under the blanket of the, of the class four. Um, so I, I'm ear, ear more towards the, the safety precautions than if you're just working either at grade or just slightly below it, then that would be, then that is okay. But I mean, if you're going to go to depths where more people should be involved, um, I, I, that's just where I'm coming from on that. Mayor Shipley, sorry, uh, Commissioner Sellers. I, I'm, I guess in all these discussions, I was hard pressed to imagine a scenario where someone putting in um, uh, sprinklers would need to dig 10 feet. I, I feel like these are two different sets of rules. Um, so um, that was, I thought the point of putting the green uh, industry in this other set of rules. Um, am, I, am, I, am I misunderstanding? This is Enrico Villegas, project manager. It, the, uh, the class four um, was in, intended for general maintenance of facilities. And so if, um, if a green industry contractor needed to uh, 
um, excavate um, portion of a right-of-way in order to repair a sprinkler line or something like that, that would have fallen under that. Um, we've, we've given them the, the ability to now install um, their sprinkler systems in the right-of-way while functioning under the class four. There are also other parties that have a class four permit. So this definition would also apply to them. And so there are facilities for other um, utility providers that are fairly deep. And so um, trying to be cognizant of how this definition is also working with them. Um, so that's, that's where some of this challenge is coming from. Commissioner Littlejohn, um, I'm sorry to jump in here. Um, so uh, I, I'm just a little bit more clarification. So we, what exactly, I, I know you're explaining the impediment to specifying in that minor excavation definition that uh, what would stop us from just saying that um, if you are a green industry client or a contractor, um, you can, you know, dig to the two feet that Mr. Mayo was saying, otherwise all this other stuff would apply to you kind of thing. Um, I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, this is Enrico Vegas, project manager. Um, uh, Commissioner Littlejohn, I'd have to uh, uh, think on that. I, I, I don't have an answer um, for you right now. Um, I, I wonder if that might also be a, a Randy, maybe a Randy question. I, maybe I'm misunderstanding Commissioner Littlejohn, but is the question, could we say uh, two feet and not cutting concrete? And you obviously don't have to uh, go through uh, the extra process. Right. And specify that it's being done by a green industry contractor just to... Yeah. Yeah, eliminate. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I, I, I would prefer that we just not identify green if we did something like this, but it's definitely within the purview of the City Commission to direct how this policy is written or, or what the definition of a minor uh, cut is. But if it's a minor cut for anybody, it's a minor cut for green industry, it's a minor cut for anybody. I would just rather leave it as however the City Commission would like to do it, but it's definitely within your authority. This is Commissioner Sellers. I, I, I partly agree with Randy on that. I, I think once you start getting too defined in a defined term and it loses its, it, then you, you run risk of, you just run a risk there. Um, so I think for me, we, we brought, we've brought up several points. I know Mr. Mel has brought up several points. I know Commissioner Littlejohn has alluded to some points that he made and, and to that. Um, and I, you know, Enrico, I think that the, the, the term, the defined term has some good structure to it. it I just to Mr. Mail's point, I, you know, I'm just in some of the light and I mean lightest and the greatest term, I did not do a deep dive and research of different, um, you know, regulated defined terms of minor excavation but you know for several of the ones that I looked at I looked at about 10 different ones and um, there was some language in there around um, damage to you know to pavement surfaces 
um, about the integrity of the right of way. Um, there was, um, you know, how the depth of, you know, existing infrastructure and grades um, and vegetation. And so I, I see what you, I, I, I see what you were trying to do with, with the definition, the case by case piece is just the part that is a little bit cringy for me. Um, because again, you know, unless there is some type of a, a you know, an, an exemption subsection, you know, that's where I feel like that should lay to say, you know, there are some exceptions, you know, to the reg and, you know, that could be determined by the department, so on and so blase blase, but there should be a little bit more cleaner explanation as to what that minor excavation is, whether it's a depth, whether it's a use of a tool, whether it's um, disturbance of a certain grade of, uh, you know, whether it's facilities, things of that nature. So, you know, anyway, if we had to vote on this today, I would not vote um, in the favor, in favor of it, um, because I'm just not comfortable with the language around the defined term. Um, and I don't, you know, I understand your 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 um, passion for not wanting to quantify what that is, um, but I'm not sure it's it's hitting. It, you know, it's definitely not hitting the mark with those in the industry, um, and it's not hitting the mark with me. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll just leave it there. You know, I, I I appreciate the effort that's around it. I think there's some language that can be a little bit more finite. Um, so that there isn't, a, you know, if there is a case by case, that's something that can, you know, that that comes up and pass. But I don't know if it needs to be in the term. Um, so um, I'll, I'll leave it open to any commissioners. But I, I know as of right now, if we were to vote on this tonight, I would not vote in favor of it. This is Vice Mayor Larson, and um, I would, if 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 the move the could. The, if the commission decides they want to want to have more work on this ordinance done, then I would really caution us not to get too narrow in our definition, in that we do leave some room for um, some level of um, interpretation is the right word, but but just not to get too narrow in our definition. That's for sure. And this is Commissioner Solis. I appreciate that, Commissioner Larson. I think that's where guidance comes in, and Enrique has that. You know, he presented the document that you share, and maybe that's something that could be in the document. Um, but I, I would like a more tighter definition. Uh, Mayor Shipley, at the beginning of all this, before we got onto the, into the rabbit hole again, um, I, I was merely suggesting that we make sure this um, email interchange is put on the record. Um, again, so if there's some interpretation questions in the future, we're not gonna write a policy that uh, is clear to everyone, then we need we need that secondary um, interpretation um, where people can find it. Um, uh, but I also thought once upon a time that the point of writing policies was to make them clear to people so that they wouldn't have to uh, go to two or three people or um, question what uh, was eventually determined to be administrative judgments. Uh, Commissioner Finkeldye, you got any thoughts? Commissioner Finkeldye, 
I think a clearer definition would be better for sure. Um, and I know we've been kicking this down the, the road some, and you know I don't know if if we could go with the two feet and then you know if that became unworkable, staff came back to us on that. Um, if that would be a more acceptable um, process forward than going with the um, what we have before us, the case by case, and then having people come back to us and ask for further definition. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, this is Vice Mayor Larson. I would um, definitely um, also be interested in in having uh, some definition as to whether it's a concrete cut or not. Because once you get into to cuts on the pavement, it can get pretty technical and, and the need to make sure it's put back by um, in accordance with our, our code um, is, is real key. And it can get, um, like I said, more technical. So I would be definitely concerned if something like that wasn't not added into that definition. This is Commissioner Sellers. I, again, I, you know, it would be futile for me to make a motion, but I would prefer to have, you know, I would like for Enrique to, to take this back and to see if we can work another round of, of a defined term. You know, if he believes that this is what's best for, um, you know, for this reg, then, you know, it is what it is. Um, but if there's some opportunity to connect with the regulated community and to find some common ground and to work a regulation and work the term that way. Um, you know, you know to, to give an anecdotal story, that's what I do on the state level. So, um, you know, if we can just try one more time, I don't see it as kicking the can. It's just, the, you know, the regulation process, you're not going to get it right on the first time. And if you do, then um, I'll give you a dollar for a winning lottery ticket. But um, if he could at least take it back and work with the community, whether it's other than the green industry, Mr. Mail or someone um, to see if we can, if there's some opportunity there to amend the proposed def, uh, definition, then, you know, I would be happy with that. Mayor Shipley. Um... I, I do want to also go back, Randy, and clarify what you have before, um, which is, um, I think your statement was that the city has no ability to um, make a lien on a homeowner um, because it's not in our city statutes or because the state of Kansas won't let us, but can you... This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. There, there would be nothing where they would owe us any money or anything regarding the right-of-way. They just have to get a right-of-way permit if they're going to do any temporary work in the right-of-way. If it's a permanent structure like a underlying pipe or, you know, if they're AT&T or something of that nature, we get bonds from those companies. And the purpose we get the bonds for is if they were to tear up the street and then abandon the project. And so we get a bond from them so that we can then go against the bond and then fix the street and it costs the city nothing. But we do not require bonds for temporary right-of-way work, which any homeowner would be doing. If they're gonna be put something permanent in there that's not exempted, that's not a, 
retaining wall, that's not landscaping, we've exempted all those things out of it, then there's no requirement that there a bond be had. And so then there would be no no means of of going back and putting a lien on the property for something that's done. Now, if we had a judgment because of something that was done, then you know that might lead to a lien, but there would be no no process of that. There would have to be some type of uh, lawsuit, some type of order issued, and those types of things. But under this under this scheme currently, there is no way that that can happen. And and as while well, I'm still talking, this Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney, again. Um, I, I think probably what would be a good idea would be send the the regulations back to uh, staff, have us look at the definition again with the two feet idea and the cutting of the pavement idea. And then, but the ordinances, if you're, if you guys are satisfied with the ordinances, you could go ahead and forward with those today. If that was, if that was your choosing at this point. in time. Mayor Shipley, thank you, uh, Randy. Um, I feel like I'm hearing commissioners say that they'd like more clarity. Um, am I, uh, sorry not to mansplain what I thought I heard to everyone, that was rude. Uh, but uh, if, if there's agreement among uh, uh, commissioners that we would like further clarification um, on the definition um, from staff, Randy and Enrico, um, I, I, I would agree with that. This is Vice Mayor so I'm fine with that. Commissioner Little John, I'm fine with that as well. Commissioner Finkel, I can make a motion. Uh, but I was going to say, um, are folks okay with the two ordinances? We haven't talked about those, so. Okay, my motion would be, um, I consider adopting on second and final reading ordinance number 9904 and ordinance number 9905 and deferring the right of way administrative regulation amendments and directing staff to look at the definition of minor excavation. Commissioner Sellers, I second. Mayor Shibley, I have a first and a second. Commissioner Fingledye? Aye. Uh, Commissioner Sellers? Aye. Vice Mayor Larson? Aye. Commissioner Littlejohn? Aye. Mayor Shipley, aye. That passes five to zero. Um, I heard from Randy, but Enrico, I want to make sure you have what you need. This is Enrico, uh, project manager. I think so. Um, I will also be, uh, I have a scheduled meeting with the Kansas Corporation Commission this Friday. Um, so I can also kind of bounce this around to them too um, and kind of see what their what their perspective is on this. So um, I'll, I'll definitely work on it and see what we can do about the depth and, and all of that, so. Mayor Shipley, thank you very much. Um, that takes us, I'm sorry, Sherry, did I say five to zero? I'm gonna make sure I said that. Uh, that takes us to um, public comment. 
I'm going to check on everybody. Oh, it's only one hour. Okay. Uh, the public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Again, Sherry, I will let you tell me who's there in the room. Thank you. My name is Michael Lawrence Countability. Uh, won't take a lot of time tonight. I thank uh, Craig for meeting with me and coming to an adjustment on the Cora issues that we had with the $90 an hour charges. I still have a lot of questions there, but we'll leave that one lay. During that meeting though, uh, I wanna to touch on the fact that we have a situation at LPD where accountability is held within the department and there's really no outside oversight from what I'm gathering. Um, the May 5th incident last year, there, there was an arrest downtown. I'm sure all the commissioners are aware. I've hollered about it quite a bit. But that arrest, the OPA boss, Troy Squire at the time, told everybody in emails that the officers performed admirably and that they were exonerated and that they did their jobs great and this and that. I think in the videos that I've shown where we've slowed this down and can actually see an officer mount an individual with his knees, I think there's some questions there. And I've talked to a lot of people that seem to have a lot of questions about that, but nobody's wanting to answer those questions. Now, I escalated that to the city commission and I got back a couple of responses indicating that the city commission had asked for a second review of this case. And that sounded great. So I asked a little while later if I could find out the results of that. And I was told probably not. In my meeting with Craig the other day, he seemed like he didn't know anything about this. So I guess I'm wondering who the commission asked to do the review. And was it just another LPD review of the same case that they'd already exonerated people on? This is where we're getting at. We need some outside oversight. And I think this case shows the need for the Community Police Review Board to be at its own independent board without all the police involvement, without all the police skewing how they have to view things. And I think we need to remove the obstructions to them getting some information. I think it's unfortunate that we lost a good board member a couple of weeks ago at the same time that we had two former officers arrested for the things that they did while they were on duty. This isn't just stuff that's happening. It's stuff they're doing while they're on duty, guys. We have an issue with accountability and we, we need some outside oversight from that community police review board. We need your help to get the LPD to understand that the police review board needs to be independent. Thank you. Did you want to provide general public comment? Okay. James Minor. James Minor, Lawrence Branch, NAACP. Good evening, commissioners and city manager. My name is James Minor, a member of the Lawrence Branch, NAACP, and co chairman of the Political Action Standing Committee. After independent research and discussion with relevant parties, 
The Lawrence Branch NAACP would like to see the recommendations that were derived from the city gate review be completed and put in action. We believe their recommendations will make Lawrence more proactive on policing and demonstrate understanding of the community's needs and expectations. It is important that the recommendations of the report are implemented in the Lawrence, Kansas policy, police policy manual. We recommend the following. The Lawrence branch NAACP is requesting the following recommendations to make changes to the Lawrence police policy manual. One, all wording on choke and carotid artery holds are removed from the manual and replaced with any and all methods applying choke and carotid artery holds are prohibited. Two, state that no knock warrants are banned. Three, provide training and implement practices that reduce the risk of shooting at moving vehicles. Four, restructure the order in which topics are addressed in the police policy manual so that de-escalation is seen as a priority rather than a possible alternative to use of force. Emphasize at the beginning and throughout the manual the importance of de-escalation with clear rules to drive the mindset of where we want to be as a city, police force, and community. Five, provide training and implement practices that reduce the need for use of force. It is time for changes to be made to ensure a society in which all individuals have equal rights and there is no racial hatred or discrimination at the hands of the police. Thank you. Chris Flowers. Hi, I'm Chris Flowers and I'm just here to voice my support um, for the, past, the previous speakers. And also I was gonna uh, commit, make comment anyway about the resignation of one of the community police review board members. Like, I mean, you guys should be seeing that as a red flag right there that this this thing's kind of going off the track about what the police, I mean, if the police review board members think that this is all pointless, I mean, that, that should be a, a signal that things need to change somewhat. And here's what I, I was just thinking, like the purpose of why we want change is to remove the bad cops. Now we know we, we've had bad cops in the past here. I'm not saying we currently do. I'm not saying we don't. I'm suspecting we might have a few since we've had some in the past. So if we're trying to remove the bad cops, how much should we be working with the police because that's where the bad ones are. We're, we're asking for input from the people we're trying to weed out. Like I, we totally need this thing to be separate from the police. Cause I mean, I'm the like especially I also wanna bring up the police union. Like the police union isn't operating in the interest of the citizens. It's operating in the interest of the police who are paying them money for representation, I'm guessing. I mean, like, if it's like most unions, I mean, they're in it for the money, like their members are paying them money. Like, so you like, I don't know. I just, I don't, I didn't really come prepared to speak, but it just, 
it baffles my mind that we try to appease the cops as much as we do when especially when they're part, some of them might be part of the problem and also i want to say i i think we do have some really good cops but I, I, I pose this question to y'all, which is more important, having good cops or not having bad cops? I'd be willing to lose the good cops. And if it meant we lost the bad cops also and just had mediocre ones, I think just having nothing but mediocre cops would be better than having good cops, bad cops and mediocre ones. You know, it's getting rid of the bad cops is the most important thing. And that should be the focus. Thank you. That's all the general public comment, Mayor. Uh, Mayor be great. Thank you. Uh, let's go ahead then and move on to the regular agenda items. Our first agenda item is to consider receiving recommendations from the Public Incentives Review Committee. Britt should be here for us. Yeah. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. This is Britt Cromkano, Economic Development Director. Um, and tonight, uh, you are to receive recommendation from the Public Incentives Review Committee, PERC, and consider a request for an IRB sales tax exemption for the Cedarhurst Development Project. <clears throat> Excuse me. This project is a new senior living medical services and living facility that will be located at 4450 Bauer Farm Drive in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, the plans call for a 70,000 square foot building to be constructed on a currently vacant lot at a capital investment uh, cost of over 17 million. If approved, construction will start later this year and the facility would be operational in 2023. Uh, we have the applicant's representative here to talk in more detail about the project. Uh, before I turn it over to him, I wanted to briefly mention that staff has reviewed the request and feels it meets city policy for an IRB sales tax exemption. In addition, the project supports several 2040 comprehensive plan goals, including uh, diversifying the community's economic base. Um, currently, the land is vacant and generating a low level of property taxes, about a little over 34,000 a year uh, for the taxing jurisdictions. Once developed, the property will be assessed and taxed as commercial property, which will generate substantially higher property tax revenues for all taxing jurisdictions. Uh, there's approximately a net $200,000 annual difference, um, according to the hypothetical estimates that the Douglas County appraiser provided for, for me. Um, it also promotes infield development. It's uh, The project is going to be located on seven acres surrounded by similarly developed commercial properties, uh, which encourages the improvement and redevelopment uh, redevelopment of existing commercial areas that our plan also calls out. Uh, it'll expand the pool of quality jobs, workforce retention, and new job advancement. The project will support 30 full-time positions at an average annual salary of almost $43,000. Um, the a project will also support an additional 15 part-time positions. And then also just to start precedent, we've uh, approved other projects like this in the past for an IRB sales tax exemption, including the Nuvant House 2 and the Pioneer Ridge projects. Um, the PERC committee, the Public Incentives Review Committee, received the request at their March 2nd meeting and did not provide a recommendation with a split four to four vote. 
Um, at this time, I would like to turn the presentation over to Nick Dwyer to provide more details on the project. And afterwards, we would have, be happy to take any questions. Sorry, I think I was muted. Uh, thank you, Britt, and uh, thank you, uh, commissioners. I'm just going to share my screen uh, really quickly and just give a short presentation overview of the uh, of our project. Um, so, as Britt mentioned, my name is Nick Dwyer with uh, Dover Development at Cedarhurst Senior Living. Um, and this is our project. It's a 74 unit assisted living and memory care community uh, located at 4450 Bower Farm Drive uh, within the Bower Farm subdivision. Cedar Senior Living, um, we're based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, we're a vertically integrated senior housing uh, owner, operator, and developer. Uh, we currently manage over 5,400 units of independent assisted and memory care throughout the Midwest. Um, and in the state of Kansas, uh, we've currently got three projects going on. We've got one in Topeka, Kansas that is under construction, uh, one in Salina, Kansas that is under development and uh, will break around this spring. And then hopefully Lawrence will be our third project in the state of Kansas. Um, pending you know, this meeting and uh, planning review, hopefully we'll break ground here in the next several months. Um, and just to provide some figures on, on the senior housing demand that we're recognizing in, in, in Lawrence, um, the 75 plus population is expected to grow over 23% over the next five years. Um, the adult child population, uh, the anticipated decision makers for moving folks into senior housing is expected to grow another 6%. And then the average uh, year of the existing senior housing inventory uh, in the market is, is over 20 years old. Uh, to give a little bit more overview of, of our project, uh, as I mentioned, it's 74 units assisted living and memory care. Uh, it's approximately 70,000 square foot facility. It'll be a one story facility uh, with 52 AL apartments and 22 memory care apartments. Um, the total project cost is estimated to be around 21 million. That's uh, construction, land, uh, soft costs, uh, financing, uh, everything included. Um, and as Britt mentioned, uh, we anticipate to create about 50 jobs, uh, over 30 of those being full-time and the uh, average payroll um, for one of these communities is typically over one and a half million dollars. Um, and as, as Britt mentioned, we expect the average salary for those full-time employees to be over $40,000 with some uh, part-time employees on top of that. Um, in terms of construction, uh, the construction value $14 million expected to uh, generate over 100 construction jobs. And as I mentioned, I've included a schedule, but hopefully we'll break ground later this year and uh, be open uh, to start uh, accepting residents in 2024. Um, here's a good uh, exterior rendering of, of this facility. It's actually a new design we're working on uh, with an architect here in St. Louis. Um, and so these, these types of uh, facilities are the ones that we're gonna start rolling out here in Kansas, hopefully. Um, it's a very residential type facility, not a nursing home by any means, but uh, it's intended to uh, make the senior feel like they're still living at home. Uh, each resident has their own uh, private apartment with private bathroom, um, living area. Uh, there's a full service dining area. 
um, and then some amenity and activity space as well. Uh, we try to keep all of our residents busy with a, with a full suite of uh, services, uh, both healthcare services and then just life enrichment services um, to help them engage, you know, both socially and also um, increase their their well-being and their quality of life. And so the facility will have a mix of studios, one bedrooms and two bedroom apartments, as I mentioned, and obviously different price points uh, for different size apartments. And then uh, each resident will have their own sort of tailored uh, resident care plan based on their, their needs on a daily basis. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, our site, uh, as Britt mentioned, actually is undeveloped. Uh, so currently not producing a lot of, uh, of uh, property taxes for the city, uh, but it's located just east of Theater of Lawrence. And then there's a independent living um, facility um, just east of our site. Uh, so we feel like it's a really good fit. Uh, it's one of the last developable sites in this area um, and think it'll fit nicely within this development and provide seniors with uh, Nice bit of access to some some retail, coffee, shopping, uh, grocery stores, uh, and the facility will actually have a uh, a shuttle service uh, to take folks around in town and, and access those those nearby amenities. Um, and I think Britt mentioned this, but just want to emphasize one more time: um, you know, we are not asking for real estate tax abatement. Uh, the city will be receiving. Property taxes from day one uh, should be quite a quite a boost uh, compared to what the property is producing now. Uh, we are only asking for construction sales tax abatement uh, just due to a number of factors. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, we've got a project in Salina, Kansas that um, is still under development. We hope to break ground, but uh, we started pricing that project with our general contractor uh, in the fall and saw a 15% increase um, of what we were building our project into Pika for, which is actually a larger building, uh, which broke ground a year ago. Um, and we've we've priced that project several times thereafter, and we're just seeing substantial increases as, as big as 15% in less than six months. Uh, and then on top of that, senior housing uh, is a bit of a, a nuance within the real estate sector. So we're getting hit from both sides, uh, both on the construction side and then the operational side uh, took quite a hit during COVID. Um, Cedarhurst as a company uh, saw a 21% increase in operating expenses um, from Q3 2020 to 2021. Uh, then we've budgeted uh, about a 33% increase in wages uh, just, just because of the, the uh, unstableness in the, in the healthcare labor market right now. Um, and so this this construction sales tax coupon uh, would provide a huge benefit to this project um, due to the fact that the construction price of this project has yet to be bid out and it's still an unknown. Um, so any little bit helps at this point. Um, and we hope that, you know, with the approval of this request, uh, we'll help bring this project uh, to Lawrence and make it a reality. Um, and as Britt mentioned, we think there's a precedent. Uh, there's been several other senior housing projects, both Pioneer Ridge and Newbin House, uh, have received a, a similar type benefit. So appreciate everyone's time and uh, happy to ans answer any questions uh, that you all may have. Thank you. Mayor Shipley, I wanna go ahead and make sure Britt doesn't have anything more to say or there's not any other uh, bits of presentation uh, left. <laughs> Mayor Shipley, this is Britt Kramkano, Economic Development Director. No, I don't have any additional comments to make. Um, again, at this time, 
we'd be happy to either the applicant or myself um, to stand for questions. Um, Mayor Shipley, I, I have a question. Uh, actually, I think it might be for Randy um, or Tony, who, whoever um, is is in the legal side of this. Um, my recollection of other, some other things, um, for example, in the realm of the Board of Zoning Appeals, is that precedent isn't require us to vote one way or another. Um, uh, we are uh, obviously could be at any time a different commission than one 10 years or 12 years ago. Can you talk to me about the um, realities of precedent in these situations? City Attorney Tony Wheeler, I, I can answer that question. Uh, you are correct, um, Mayor. Each commission gets to evaluate agenda items um, and bring your own judgments and decision making um, on these matters. So if that's responsive to your request. Mayor Shipley, thank you. Uh, Mayor Shipley, any other comments or questions from commissioners for the applicant? Uh Commissioner Littlejohn, um, thank you, uh, Nick, for uh, presenting and uh, Britt for bringing this to us. Um, I had the opportunity to go ahead and look at the uh, public incentives meeting. Um, and I also saw that the presentation that we're being shown today uh, looked pretty similar to the one that was shown then. Um, I, I just had some, you know, questions regarding some of the questions that were brought up during that meeting. I didn't really see them addressed anywhere in here, and I, I just wondered if I was missing something. Um, no, I mean the the presentation was edited slightly uh, just to make it a bit more brief um, due to the nature of this meeting. But um, would be happy to answer, you know, any of the questions that you're referencing that were brought up in the in the per committee. Um, I did have a chance to go back to uh, some folks within within our company and, and get some answers on some things that I was not able to speak on uh, during that meeting. So happy to answer those if, if you've got specific questions. Sure. Uh, uh, Commissioner Littlejohn, I won't take up all of the questions, but I'll at least ask maybe one or two. Um, regarding the LED or Energy Star component, uh, it, I know that uh, one of the board members mentioned that since the other previous projects, uh, you guys did mention precedent um, that, uh, you know, in terms of the sales tax abatement, um, you know, that was given on those other two projects. But since then, we've um, transitioned and wanted to implement more of uh, sustainability into a lot of the features in the buildings that are in town, as well as equity uh, has become, uh, you know, we re-emphasized a lot of components on that. So um, just speaking to the uh, sustainability piece, I did notice that it wasn't really addressed in the previous um, application before the board and not here either. Uh, I was wondering if you had any further information on that. Um, I've got some information, uh, but to be quite frank, uh, you know, this is not a, a lead certified or um, I guess maybe what some would consider a su sustainable design. And, and quite frankly, uh, it probably would make the project unfeasible. Um, I will say, though, I, I spoke with our architect, um, this facility will 
uh, have quite a bit uh, of a lighting energy efficiency compared to other uh, facilities that we've done in the past, um, which means, you know, less lighting, less, uh, uh, I guess, energy being used uh, and more natural light. Um, so uh, that's a plus. Uh, we will be using energy efficient appliances uh, in all the apartments uh, and in our commercial kitchen area. Um, and then we will, as I mentioned, I think during the PERC committee, um, the project does have two exterior uh, courtyards that will feature native landscaping uh, to the area as well. Thank you for that. Um, like I said, I have a feeling there will be other questions, so I just want to do just ask you the one just for now. Thank you for those answers. Thank you. Mayor Shibley, any other questions from commissioners? Uh, Go ahead. Go ahead, dear. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, oh. Uh, I think Lisa was going to. I'm sorry, I can't see all of you at the same time. I apologize. I think Commissioner Larson <laughs> was, or Vice Mayor Larson. Vice Mayor, please. Yeah, um, thank you, uh, Vice Mayor Larson here. Um, uh, Nick, you kind of expand a little bit on the environmental sustainability aspect of the project. Um, um, you made some statements during the PERC uh, meeting that kind of caught me by surprise and, and uh, something I'm having a hard time getting past. Uh, and understand a little bit more. Um, when asked about environmental sustainability and the fact that nothing had been completed on your application in that regard, um, your statement, and I quote, was that, you know, with the current construction market and the cost increase increases, it, this is not something that we focus on in our facilities. And I, I was really taken aback by that comment. And that's a quote from you. Um, now, you did go on to say that your focus is more outdoor space, uh, more green space, you, private porches and so forth, which is good, it, which is really good. So um, just to get a better understanding of, of our community values and what we've gone through in order to implement more environmental sustainability within our community, we, we've got a pretty significant history in the past few years to to um, ensure that we have that within our policy documents as well as some of our ordinances. Um, and when you talk about not wanting to be um, go lead certified, I understand that it's very expensive to actually get that certification and we don't require that. We just, what we'd like to see is that you um, do lead, what we call lead equivalent. And I believe that's even within the application itself. And also when you implement these types of um, energy efficient pro pro um, programs within a building um, situation, a new, new structure, you actually save money um, in the long run on energy costs. So I'm kind of surprised to hear you um, say that with the cost increases that, that this would be something that would be negative for your company because energy efficiency actually saves you money in the long run. Um, and just to give you a little understanding of what our community has gone through, um, it all starts with our document of Plan 2040. And I don't know if you had a chance to read through that, but in 2019, we passed that. And that was like a four year process where we had over 50 community meetings to discuss what is our plan up through 2040. And it had a strong sense in that, that environmental sustainability was extremely important to our community members. And then in 2020, we had an economic development assessment done of our community. And the thread through that was how important environmental sustainability is to the values of our community. 
And um, then in 20, also in 2020, I believe is when we passed the ordinance that um, that the commissioners committed to being carbon neutral by 2035, I think it was. And then in 2021, we developed our strategic plan, which essentially is the thread that brings all of these documents together and all these community values together to implement um, to implement the environmental sustainability that our community values um, very highly. So I was just very surprised to hear what you said, some of the statements you made during the PERC um, meeting and um, um, didn't know if you want to talk more about that or, or what. And then also something else that you had indicated in there that um, during that meeting was that um, um, that you had indicated that that the project, you, you couldn't say that the project wouldn't be built if you didn't get the IRB. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, thank you for those questions. Um, I'll start with the with the energy efficiency and the and the sustainable design. Um, so I guess first and foremost, um, our our number one concern is always our residents um, and our seniors. Um, and so with the with the challenges that we've seen, um, you know, obviously with the construction costs, like you mentioned, um, they can be, you know, quite cost prohibitive to implement some of those uh, those lead certified designs. And so that's that's the route that we chose um, in order to, and especially in this crazy construction pricing market, um, to make the project uh, more affordable. Um, but we do provide a lot of um, outdoor amenity spaces that our residents love um, and that we we think um, sort of makes up for that in a way. Um, those those outdoor exterior courtyards with the native plantings, each resident having their own private porch and exterior uh, outdoor space. Um, but as I mentioned, with the, with the operating costs kind of doubling on top of the, the construction costs in the senior living industry, um, our main focus is is providing a, a um, I guess feasible project to where we'll be able to provide the best care possible for the for the seniors. So um, that is a good point. You know, there there probably are ways where we could maybe make some tweaks um, and provide some more uh, energy efficient um, maybe systems or more appliances within the building to lower uh, operating costs on the on the utility and, and energy uh, efficiency side. Um, but the main driver of, of the, the uh, feasibility of these projects is the is the staffing and the care that that gets brought into these facilities, um, and so you know with those costs going up, it just it it sort of eats away at all that that opportunity to to implement some of those other things, and so um, that that's just a challenge, quite frankly, that that we're that we're uh, that we're facing, and it's difficult to overcome. Um, in terms of the uh, the project, whether it would get built or not. Um, I kind of mentioned this during my presentation, but uh, we're still finalizing the design of this project with both our civil engineer and our architect. Um, you know, the civil engineering side is is quite a bit of the ways baked, but um, the the architectural set and and that the engineering uh, civil engineering have not gone out to bid to the market yet. So, uh, just you know, what we've seen over the past six months with the you know, 15% increase over 15% increase on similar size projects and, and very similar in design as well. Um, it's just hard for me to say at this point, you know, when we go to market in say April um, and say, hey, you know, let's bid this project out and see what the see what the numbers come in. Um, you know, just with with what's been happening late, lately, it's it's tough to say if this uh, exemption could move the needle or not, but it very well could. Um, and every little bit counts at this point when we're just seeing costs go up 
um, substantially in, in such short periods of time. Um, it very well could be that the construction sales tax could be the piece to, to get it over the edge. So. This is Commissioner Sellers, and this might be a question for Brett just as a point of clarification and information. The Cedarhurst project is requesting IRB. Our catalyst program is what deals with tax abatements, which has the doesn't have the lead certification, but it has the lead guidance to it. But we don't have that lead guidance connected to any type of IRB request. Is that correct? That is. Um, excuse me, Commissioner, this is Britt Crumkano, Economic Development Director. Yes, uh, the only tie in the policy right now is sustainability is one of several considerations of which uh, for eligibility and when at least one, uh, you need at least one of those uh, considerations uh, to be eligible. So I think, let's see, this is section 2.5.1 in the policy. In considering whether to approve an application for an IRB, the governing body shall determine if the proposed project achieves one or more of the following public benefits. There's several things listed. Um, the, um, the project does promote infill, uh, so it does meet at least one. Uh, and it does provide other benefits to the city. So it does it does meet at least one of those. Um, the, uh, the requirement for sustainability is the project incorporates environmentally sustainability elements into the design and operation of the facility. There is no requirements for lead certification or any type of certification or even lead equivalency. That has to do with the property tax abatement level that's uh, given via the Catalyst program. This is Commissioner Sellers. Thank you, Brent. So just for tax abatement, so like TD, so TDD, CID, TIF, IRBs don't have that. Just for my my sake of knowledge, it's only right. tax abatement for that that lookalike or or alignment or certification. But CIDs, TIFs. TDDs, all the acronyms that people don't know that are writing down to Google, those are not part of that lead piece. Well, without checking the policy, it can't verify in everything, but it's certainly not for the IRBs. It comes to play with the property tax abatement. And just for clarification, an IRB can be used both for a sale tax exemption as well as a property tax abatement. And then if that's the case, it has to meet the qualifications of both of both policies, but okay. this, this is an IRB sales tax exemption. Or the sales tax. Exactly, yes. yes. This is Commissioner Sellers, thank you for that, that clarification. Mayor Shipley, any further questions uh, from commissioners before we move on to public comment? Not seeing any. Um, uh, Sherry, is there anyone there in the room who would like to speak to this item? Uh, no, there's not, Mayor. Um, do you see, sorry, Mayor Shipley, is there anyone there on the line that you see? Uh, yes, Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers, and I, um, a question I would like, um, well, I was just wondering um, what, like, what kind of jobs 
are is like what kind of pay will any jobs be that are created by this like um I don't know. I'm kind of suspicious about this one getting money. Like what? I, I I'm just having trouble seeing what the benefit is. That if how did what what do we lose if this thing doesn't get like built? Um, where I work, we currently are having trouble hiring people. So these better be really good jobs. That if we're going to be given tax breaks to, or maybe. And the other thing I was wondering, like if someone builds an apartment complex, we do give tax breaks if they if they um, set aside enough units for affordable housing. Like, is there anything when it comes to seniors, senior citizen living places? Like, is there something equivalent where like if they agree to take in a certain amount of low income families or I mean, I don't know the full details on this. Like, I don't know if, like, what I I don't know if this is one where you have to have money to live in. Because if it is, I'd be okay if it got incentives if they were taking in low income ones, similar to how apartment complexes. If when we give tax breaks, if they set aside so many for affordable housing, so that'd be a benefit I'd be okay with. And also, when it comes to like like past like other pl similar places getting a tax break in the past. I'd just like to point out in the past, we've had Mike Amix and, and Stuart Bowley. And I kind of, my nickname for Stuart Bowley was tax break Bowley because he was giving out tax breaks to a lot of like to play the things I wouldn't have. So I, I just want to throw that out there that you shouldn't be you're you are a different commission and and some of the commissioners in the past I'm glad they're gone and I, I wouldn't want them you know voting on tax breaks so thank you. Um, I'll, thanks Chris I'll go ahead and answer uh, the jobs portion well I guess first and foremost. Uh, no. Sorry, Nick. Um, we oh, right. let, let everyone do their comments, and then you just write them down, and then oh, we'll to answer them at the at the end. If gotcha. you you'll get you'll get it. There. I'll give you time. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> uh, let me check with Sherry here. Sherry, is there anyone else who wants to do comment? Uh, no, there's not, Mayor. Thank you. Okay. Um, Nick, go right ahead. Okay. Um, I guess first off, no, uh, Chris, this is not an affordable project. Um the rates that seniors will be paying are uh, almost identical to uh, other senior living facilities in town. Uh, for example, Pioneer Ridge, uh, Newvin House, uh, Monterey Village, um, and several others. Um, but it is not uh, a low income uh, or like a tax credit project or anything like that. Uh, and then in terms of the jobs, uh, as Britt mentioned, uh, we've we've built similar uh, facilities um, like this uh, throughout the throughout the Midwest, and they typically create around 50 uh, jobs. Uh, usually, 60% are full time, um, and uh, the the other uh, portion are are part time. Um, I will say, uh, every position. Sorry, I'm just looking at my HR stuff. Um, every position uh, will have a competitive 
competitive benefit package, including medical insurance coverage, life insurance, long-term disability coverage, and a 401k plan with company match. Um, and then just to give you an idea on the types of jobs that this project would be bringing to Lawrence, um, usually one of these facilities will have uh, a few executive level folks uh, and administrators that oversee both uh, sort of the property management and then the uh, operations of the facility. Uh, and then working your way down, you have nursing directors and uh, medical staff that kind of oversee the care that, that goes on. Uh, and then you have your care providers uh, who could be RNs, LPNs, um, RAs, um, so kind of all over the spectrum in terms of uh, levels of nurses. And then we also will have uh, a commercial kitchen that will feed the residents uh, and that will provide uh, a dining director position uh, with a uh, kitchen staff underneath them. Um, and then there's also maintenance staff, uh, typically one to two maintenance uh, workers who will oversee the facilities um, and then housekeeping and then just some other administrative concierge a bus driver. Um, and so the wages uh, range quite a bit from starting in the six figures all the way down to, you know, high school part-time jobs uh, that are paying, you know, 12, 14 bucks an hour. Um, and I think Britt mentioned the average salary when you combine all that up is about 40, what is it, 44,000, Britt? Yeah, I think it was almost 43,000. Mayor, could I um, say something? This is Vice Mayor Larson. Um, when you say the average salaries, what's the median salary? Well, I did not do the median because I ran the cost benefit analysis, which looks at the weighted average, and that's the data I pulled. I don't know, Nick, if you have that. I don't have that. I'm sorry, I could get back to you on that, but I don't think I have. Uh have that handy. Uh, this is Commissioner Littlejohn. I, if, uh, I apologize, Vice Mayor Larson. I, if you don't mind, I'd like to jump in as well. Um, I, I know earlier in the uh, first meeting, you, you'd spoken to uh, you know high concern to a lot of us as well, making sure that if this is going to be in town, that it would employ a lot of people who work in town. Um, how successful has that been in Topeka in terms of local workforce employment? I, I know you alluded to it, but I didn't really get a specific answer on that. Uh, I was just wondering as well. Um, yeah, so sorry to clarify. So that Topeka project has not opened yet, um, but we do have projects that are operational in the Kansas City area. Um, one in Blue Springs, Missouri, one in uh, um, Independence. Um, but typically, I guess what is what you're asking, are we going to be pulling from from Lawrence? Okay, um, the answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so typically six months out uh, before the community would open, um, we would typically try to hire someone locally to sort of kick things off, um, an executive director and then a sales director. Um, and they would be, you know, obviously, um, leasing the building uh, with, with local Lawrence uh, residents, uh, but they would also be driving uh, the hiring um, for folks uh, locally. Um, and honestly, it's a benefit to have folks um, locally uh, being brought on uh, during the onboarding process. 
um, just due to the nuances in senior housing in each respective state and municipality. Um, you know, we're definitely um, wanting to pull from the city of Lawrence, um, not just to, you know, pull on their, their locale uh, or I guess local knowledge, um, but also because they're probably experienced in the, in the, both the, the nursing side of things and then experience with state licensure and whatnot. So uh, we absolutely will be hiring. I would say the majority of the folks working in the facility will, will be uh, from Lawrence, if not all of them. And in, in addition to that, in terms of the construction side, uh, it's, I just want to, you know, more clarification on the concerted effort to go ahead and make sure, because we have quite a few unions and, um, uh, you know, trades here in town that, you know, if, if something is going to be built like that in town, I would really, really hope that, you know, they would, they would be one of the first options that you would oh, absolutely. that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. We always use, look to use local subcontractors, um, just due to the efficiencies and, and obviously want to make sure we're, we're working with all the players in town. So. Mayor Shipley, uh, other comments or discussion? This is Commissioner Sellers. Um, I did have a couple of, of I guess, if we're on comments, um, you know, I, you know, just like Commissioner Littlejohn and others, I did review the the PERC um, meeting and um, kind of came out of that meeting a bit conflicted. Um, but also, I think having today's presentation helped to shed a little bit of light on some things, perhaps not necessarily germane to um, the request of, um, of IRBs, but just to the impact. And I know Brett um, landed on this on several pieces as it relates to 2040 and its impact on our community as it relates to infill, um, diversifying our, our, our tax base, um, as well as, um, you know, the, the prospects of individuals aging and aging in, in place, um, that is comparable to, um, something that's familiar to them. And so, um, you know, looking at the um, one of the slides that Mr. Um, Dwyer had, um, I did see, you know, in regards to the FTEs, and when you're looking at those executive and professional levels, you know, that drives that average income of 43000 a year, where, you know, that group is probably seeing somewhere a little bit higher than that, and they're averaging about a $40, $40 an hour um, salary. And then, of course, where the bulk of your FTEs are going to come, is in those, um, I would say, allied sub-level, your LPNs, your RNs, um, your, your MAs, your, your MedAids, your CNAs, cooks and everything, which gets us around that $15, $15.5. So livable, but I'd say livable light. So um, I am looking at that. Talking about job and workforce, um, again, you know, this project caters to a population that is growing in Lawrence. Um, and that growth and having facilities such as Cedarhurst, like Newmont House and Briner Ridge and, and others, um, it, requires, uh, it requires a workforce that's not growing right now. Um, I have a sister that works, who is a nurse who works in, you know, this field. And it, you know, the current pandemic has taken a toll, so it's going to take a lot of work. It's not a guarantee that we have the workforce here in Lawrence to cover this. So we may be pulling people and competing with Topeka 
we may be pulling people from Baldwin, DeSoto, um, Ottawa, um, heck, even Johnson County if that. Um, so, you know, there's that to consider as well. Um, you know, I, I'm appreciative that there's a benefits package um, that, you know, most of these positions and, and facilities as such don't offer great benefit packages. Um, oftentimes the insurance is subpar and people are better off uh, getting insurance on the marketplace uh, because they're paying more than 8% of their take-home salary uh, for insurance. So, I, you know, that's something to think about. Um, but I think this project um, to a point that Mr. Flowers raised, um, but it's also an educational point, you know, this is, you know, a private company. And so this is for individuals that are not necessarily dependent on Social Security, Medicaid or Medicare or not live there. That's not the population for this for this particular property. That's not good, it's not bad, it's not indifferent, it is what it is. Um, and so, you know, we need to take that as a separate conversation. And I think, you know, what's being proposed fits within the parameters of an IRB. I just hope that as things start to progress in our community, as we talk about aging in place and providing opportunities for low-income individuals to have permanent low-income affordable housing, that we see those projects as well and we give them the care and consideration um, that we're giving this, this project this evening. Commissioner Finkel, I guess I would just, you know, jump in. I do think, um, I'd say a couple things, big picture, then come back, um, you know, more specifically. But, you know, big picture when, you know, people talk about companies getting tax breaks. So, you know, these are the type of companies we want to have tax breaks. I mean, we're talking about an IRB sales tax here. I mean, after they pay the bonding fee, we're talking about $170,000, $160,000. $54,000 from the city of Lawrence, 16,000 from the county and 160,000 from the state. Um, you know, if this, it, it only gets paid if the project gets built, if they actually build the project and use the sales taxes, you know, and buy these stuff, only then does it get, does it actually get collected. And if this project is built, it takes us and the county about two and a half months to recoup um, of property tax only, not counting anything else that's generated from the project, but from pure property taxes, it takes us about two and a half months of having that um, paid back. So, you know, from a pure numbers point of view, you know, if this piece, someone could say, well, yeah, but one day someone will build on this property that maybe it's not them, someone else will build on it and we'll eventually get that property tax. Well, every two and a half months it takes for something to be built there we'd be paying ourselves back. So the quicker this project, a project is built, the sooner we start collecting something, in this case, about $193,000 a year. So to me, um, you know, the bulk of this, it's it's a little over, uh, the, the bulk of this is, 200, it's $230,000, um, $160,000 of which comes from the state. And the state authorizes this um, program because they know they'll make, you know, under those same calculates, calculations, they'll make about $230,000 a year in property tax off this project. So again, they'll pay back in their first year as well. So, and that's why the state allows us to give these IOBs. Um, so, I mean, to me, um, on a purely um, dollar and cents, um, this makes this makes good sense. It's, it's something that 
there's no risk. It's not like we give them money and never get paid back. They only get this sales tax exemption if they actually build the project. And at that point, we know we'll be paid back in about two and a half months. Um, and then I would add on top of that, um, you know, all the things that, that Britt mentioned on an infill property in a good location that's been vacant for a long time. I mean, I was on the planning commission 15 years ago, at least 15 years ago when Bauer Farms was created. And, you know, the, the estimate was Bauer Farms would be full within the first year it was built. And here we are 15 years later and we still have an empty lot there. Um, and so, you know, anything we can do to encourage, especially something as light as this, um, you know, to get this project built, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's a good use of that. Finally, I would say we did, you know, um, Theater Lawrence is in that location. Um, and of course it does not pay any taxes as a nonprofit. Um, but we, we wanted, you know, um, people around that facility to use it and having, a Another facility in that in that neighborhood, um, I think, helps uh, a local, um, you know, a local nonprofit to have residents close by. So, to me, um, it's something I can support um, fairly easily. I mean, if they were asking for a property tax abatement, if they were asking for um, us to do other things, well, certainly then, um, as Commissioner Sellers pointed out, we would have uh, more requirements on them. Um, and, and so anyway, um, I think it's something I can support. Thanks. Um, Mayor Shipley, um, I, I might break in here. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Finkel-Dye. It is always helpful to have your perspective, um, where I would maybe point out though, is that we're not telling them they can't build the free market is what the free market is. And they were quite clear that this is a lucrative business all across the Midwest or they wouldn't do it. Um, so I'm, uh, it, if the market bears it, of course, they're welcome to build it. And um, with uh, my full support, assuming it can get through planning and all just like anything else. Um, the question is, does, um, does this incentive actually make a difference in their um, using it, and then does does that does any of the project comport with our other values? I think Commissioner, um, sorry, Vice Mayor Larson just explained uh, the last few years of our uh, strategic planning, our comprehensive planning, um, uh, fantastically with a bow. Um, there's a number of things here that I don't know that I would, I would incentivize. Um, he, you know, um, Mr. Dwyer even said, this is not a sustainable design. Um, for example, well, they have yards, that's great. Um, that's the kind of life that uh, a certain generation might be used to. But one of the reasons that we invest so heavily in our parks and our parks and rec, which is a considerable amount of money, is so that we can share that space and increase density by using that green space. So it doesn't really comport with our values in that way. Um, I'm glad Commissioner Sellers brought up aging in place. Aging in place means aging in place. Uh, you don't move to another facility, you stay in your home. Um, and we do things to facilitate that. So, you know, if, if our um, plan 2040 uh, spells out aging in place, then building places um, that don't 
facilitate that is not a priority for us. Um, I think there's some real questions about whether that would actually happen since Lawrence routinely attracts people to retire here, um, whether that would actually free up the housing stock that we think it might. Um, uh, another issue um, is, <laughs> yeah, there's a cost benefit analysis for the school district and the county, um, but it won't add children. And we recently had a real discussion about the need for children to enroll. So it may indeed expand uh, or may indeed build something for people to live in, um, but it, it won't do anything for the school district in terms of enrollment. Um, and as we know, we need housing stock of every kind. So I, I have a hard time believing that something wouldn't be built there that has people in it of any age. So that's also not a huge incentive for me. And of course, the argument that it's happened in the past is not working on me at all. We're a totally different group. That was a totally different city in a lot of ways. After COVID, a lot of things have changed, including, as many have pointed out, the workforce and the job market. Um, so, um, and and I, uh, indeed, you don't have to be LEED certified um, to get this incentive. But as Vice Mayor Larson um, has pointed out, um, it, it's actually not a very high bar, especially since we don't require you to pay for the LEED certification, simply be um, uh, equivalent. So those are several, but probably not all of the reasons I'm, um, I, I don't see this as quali qualifying for incentives. This is Vice Mayor Larson, and I, I do want to start out. I, there's a lot about this project I really like, um, Nick. Um, I think that it hits a lot of the marks that Britt talked about. Um, in the, in, as far as our community goes, um, where I'm having a really difficult time um, after watching the PERC meeting and again, the questions that were answered tonight is, is, is this the idea of the environmental sustainability? And I know that there's aspects to this that do meet that bar. And infill is something we've really concentrated on. Um, I'm concerned about um, what it seems like an attitude about environmental sustainability, how important it is to our community. And then also, um, again, with some of the statements you made regarding whether or not, you know, they would really need this in order to build this. And so, um, again, I really like the project. I would like for it to be built here, uh, but I'm going to vote no on this. I did want to add that uh, my history on voting for, for various tax breaks is pretty strong. I mean, I'm very, I've been... Um, uh, voted yes on numerous projects. I can't even think the last one I didn't vote on. So um, this was a, I feel like it's a departure for me, but I have some pretty strong feelings about what was, um, what's kind of come to pass on it. This is Commissioner Sellers, just as another point of information um, as a new commissioner, I'm still claiming that. And this question is for Brent. Brent, again, the the IRB, it this project hits certain criteria. While sustainability is one of those criteria, but it has to hit a certain 
number of criteria. It doesn't necessarily mean that sustainability is a, a definite one that it has to hit. That is correct, according to policy. Correct, according to policy. Thank you. Mayor Shipley, um, Commissioner Littlejohn, how are you? I'm cogitating here. Uh, that's an appropriate word, Commissioner Littlejohn. Um, I, I like, you know, as uh, Vice Mayor Larson said, I like a lot, a lot of aspects of this project, but, um, and as Commissioner Sellers said, it does follow the letter of the law, so to speak, but, um, uh, it, it, I would, you know, to go ahead and have no reservations about it. I would love if they would, um, you know, make it that concerted effort to be energy efficient or uh, include that or make that concerted effort to, you know, um, uh, to make sure that they are upholding and, you know, uh, being, you know, adhering to some of the ideals that we put forth over the last couple of years, especially regarding the strategic plan and things of that sort. Um, but it does follow the letter of the law. So that's kind of where I'm, I am ambivalent. I'm Mayor, sorry, that's okay. Mayor Shipley, I guess to that point, I, I do recall um, one uh, commissioner at PERC pointing out that residential um, projects do not qualify for IRBs. And I just want to quote what Mr. Dwyer said here tonight. Um, he said it is a residential type facility, not like a home, which would to me distinguish it from a hospital or a congregate uh, medical type facility. Um, that was a little bit of a conversation they had. And I do know, I want to give Britt a second here because I know she did respond to that commissioner. Uh, but but that is another reason that I feel um, justified in, in not considering this kind of thing. But I want to give Britt a moment to respond. Yes, um, Mayor Shipley, this is Britt Crumkino, Economic Development Director. Um, a couple of things, again, get going back to the policy, if I can, uh, a couple of things to clarify. Let me see if I can get to that section here. Basically, within our um, a couple of things. First of all, this project we thought, staff thought, was very different from a residential project due to the nature of services provided, including the, the skilled medical care and the specific needs of seniors living within the facility. In fact, when I went to the county appraiser, he couldn't appraise it as he would a normal residential. He had to get additional information from the applicant because of all the specialized equipment and the, the way it would have to be constructed to, to support those types of things. Um, the other thing is section 2.5.5 does specifically call out support for senior living residential facilities. Um, the city may consider the issuance of IRBs for proposed projects that are primarily residential in nature if the primary purpose of the, the proposed project is to provide affordable housing, 
multifamily dwellings, senior living, or mixed use development. So I did want to kind of clarify that is the exact wording in the policy. Does that help? Mayor Shibley, any further comments or motions? This is Commissioner Sellers. Um, I move that we approve resolution of intent number 7413, authorizing industrial revenue bond financing for Dover Construction LLC for the purpose of, of accessing a sales tax exemption on project construction materials for the Cedarhurst Assisted Living and Memory Care Facility to be located at 4450 Bower Farm Drive in Lawrence, Kansas. Commissioner Fingal, I second. Mayor Shibley, I have a first and a second. Uh, Commissioner Sellers? Aye. Commissioner Finkeldye? Aye. Commissioner, I'm sorry, Vice Mayor Larson? Nay. Commissioner Sell, um, Little John? Aye. Commissioner Shipley, nay. That passes three to two. Uh, it's, um, hold on, let's make sure we did everything we need here. Yep. Um, it's eight, so I do want to give everyone a comfort break. We've been here since 545. Is 10 minutes enough for everyone? I see a thumbs up. Okay, let me look here, Sherry, so that I can tell you the, actually, let's do, um, let's see, seven, sorry. <laughs> let's do 805. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. <clears throat> <laughs> we're we're here. Okay, I don't know where you're ready. Went. Okay, all right. Yeah, we got one a few seconds here. Again, depending on which device I look at. I'm buying commission. I'm buying Mayor Shipley anatomical watch. Every device I have is an Apple device. I have no idea why one of them is not. <laughs> With the program, I have no idea. <laughs> All right, I think we're good here. Um, um, we started recording. I don't want to get too far along. Yep, there we are. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Mayor Courtney Shipley, uh, returning to our meeting for March 22nd, 2022. Um, we need to take roll. Um, Vice Mayor Larson. Here. Commissioner Fingledye. Here. Commissioner Littlejohn. Here. Commissioner Sellers. Present. Uh, Mayor Shipley also here. Let's go ahead and move on to item number two. Yep, that's right. Uh, consider authorizing the city manager to in enter into an hourly rate service agreement not to exceed $14,500 with Gould Evans. Good evening, commissioners. Mark Hecker, Assistant Director of Parks and Recreation. 
uh, at the March 1st meeting, the commission voted to extend the temporary parklet program downtown until the uh, August 12th, and then asked staff to come back with a proposal, scope and fee proposal with an architectural firm to develop a long range program. The agenda item tonight is that scope and fee proposal. It's with Gould Evans Architects. Um, basically, they'll be tasked with meeting with city staff, making sure we're hitting the marks on all the city codes, looking at other communities, coming up with a set of design standards, and also working on fees, and then really doing a lot of work with the stakeholder groups downtown. So that's everywhere, everything from food and beverage operations to retail operations to other businesses. And I think that'll probably be most of their work, quite honestly. There's some pretty good models for, you know, what a parklet should probably look like. Uh, the fee thing will be something we're gonna have to work on and probably discuss quite a bit. But the goal is to have them walk us through the process and then bring a proposal back to the city commission that's hopefully, hopefully been vetted through various stakeholder groups. So if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Mayor Shipley, is there anyone with Gould, Gould Evans here? Do you know? I do not see them. Yeah, so many people tonight. Can't tell. Okay, just wanted to check. Um, is there any other questions for um, Mark Hecker? Commissioner Finkel, I, I only would say I had a, a few questions about the definition of the groups and then the the amendment that came out last day late today kind of answered that for me so i appreciated that that update and clarification and and to say that if people didn't see the latest update they can look at that it's just slightly different um it came out late this afternoon mayor shipley any other questions no Seeing anything, let's go ahead and do public comment. Sherry, can you see if there's someone there in the room? Uh, there's no one left here in the commission room. And as of yet, no one has indicated on Zoom that they have comment on this item. Yeah, I'm not seeing anyone. Really? Sorry, Mayor Shipley. <laughs> Uh, all these people, they might have something to say. Anybody for sure, nobody out there is interested in speaking to this item. Okay. Oh, oh. Uh, hmm. We had a hand up and then it went down. Oh, no, Mayor, there's no comments. All right. Uh, let's <laughs> thank you. <laughs> let's uh, Mayor Shibley bring this back to the commission for any comments or questions, further discussion. Commissioner Finkel, I'd only say, you know, I think several of us wanted to see this just to make sure it was covering the grounds and talking to the people that we wanted to see and appreciate the staff on that. I know normally a $14,000 contract would not necessarily come back to the commission, um, but I you know, I do think it's important to make sure we're, we're covering our bases and talking to the right people and, um, you know, before this comes back to us. So um, I appreciate seeing it and, and it certainly answered my questions and I look forward to the process being completed. Any other comments? This is Commissioner Sellers. I echo um, Commissioner Finkelnice's uh, sentiments. You know, um, I, I think 
in our March 1st meeting, we had quite a bit of conversation around scopes. I don't know if we need to belabor that again. Um, and it's a recorded meeting, so I do believe we'll have to go back and watch that to get a lot of the gist of it. Um, but yes, we, we received it. I'm satisfied with the route that it's going. And we just, again, need to let the process take its course and, and we'll get the product when we get it. Um, Mayor Shipley, I'm gonna go ahead and say stuff. Um, I mean, I recall a couple of items with um, other contractors or vendors that were something in the range of $30,000 for public engagement. Um, so I am personally appreciative that we have a local uh, vendor who is um, probably more aware of all the stakeholders than um, others might be, um, and they're willing to do this work um, so affordably. So um, I know there are no ends here from Gould Evans, but I'm personally uh, appreciative that they're willing to do this work, I presume, uh, because they care a great deal about their community. And thank you to Parks and Rec for knowing what, <laughs> for, for being focused on the strategic plan and um, knowing all the ways that um, these things are changing on the ground. So I really appreciate that. Uh, with that, are there any motions? I would move to approve. Uh, do you want me to go ahead and read the whole thing? Uh, or move to approve and uh, regarding receiving, I'm sorry, approve the 20, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong one. Authorize the city manager to enter into an hourly rate service agreement not to exceed 14500 with Gould Evans Associates LC for the development of a par permanent parklet program in downtown Lawrence. Commissioner Finkel, I second. Mayor Shibley, I hear a first and a second. Uh, Commissioner Littlejohn? Aye. Commissioner Fingle Dye? Aye. Vice Mayor Larson? Aye. Commissioner Sellers? Aye. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Mayor Shipley, aye. <laughs> Sherry, that passes five to zero. Um, let's go ahead and move on to item number three receive presentation from the Lawrence Community Shelter consider approving the 2022 Homeless and Housing Initiatives funding proposal. Good evening, Mayor Commissioners, Danny Walters with the Planning and Development Services Department. Uh, before you this evening is the return of the Lawrence Community Shelter Agreement for use of city general funds. This item first was brought to the commission on February 15th, and at that time the commission had asked staff to really look at the agreement and have it more accurately reflect the work that LCS was proposing to undertake with the funding. The initial agreement presented on the 15th was a duplicate of the 2021 funding agreement. So what we did was we took a look at the Burt Nash agreement that we put forth uh, on February 15th and saw that it brought out a lot more detail. So we added a scope of work to the LCS agreement and also um, the proposal that was submitted by them for the work that they're going to do. Uh, the other significant change is uh, the disbursement of the funding. So this agreement outlines the disbursement as half upon the city commission approval uh, this evening, and the second half would also require city commission approval in September. Um, LCS 
will be required to submit a report to staff by August 31st, and it will be followed by an update presented to the city commission in September. If the commission is in agreement that the progress has been satisfactory, then the second half of the funding could be released to them at that time. Um, for the item this evening, staff has asked LCS to do a brief overview of their services and how their services are fitting into the housing focused shelter model that they're proposing. Uh, Melissa Botts and Lacey Rowe will be leading us through that update this evening. So based on the conversation that we have uh, this evening, staff will be adding some targeted performance outcome metrics to the, uh, to the report that would be due in August. So as the commission hears the presentation and has any applicable discussion, if specific items should be added to that reporting tool, please let me know and I will make sure that, that those are added on there for everyone to, uh, to know. And uh, with that, um, if there's no questions from commissioners to me at this time, I can turn it over to Melissa and Lacey and uh, they can go through their presentation and they'll also be available to answer any questions that you might have specifically for the shelter. And Porter, they will need to share their screen as well. That's so, fine. Thank you. Can everyone see? All right. Perfect. Good evening. Good evening, city commissioners, and thank you for the opportunity for us to present our work at the Lawrence Community Shelter. My name is Lacey Rowe, and I'm the director of community engagement for LCS. I'll be giving this presentation tonight together with Melissa Botts, our interim executive director and director of programs. We are excited to tell you about our housing focused shelter and what a positive impact it has already made. For a quick overview, we'll be covering all the same sections listed in our written proposal, beginning with some background about homelessness, then detailing our work done at LCS and finally discussing data and outcomes. To achieve a better understanding of how homelessness affects our community, we need to consider the context of our local economy and also the broader context of homelessness through national trends. The top chart shows that Lawrence's poverty rate is much higher than that of the county, state, and national averages. The two charts below show that the average Lawrence renter's wage is still well below a living wage, and single parents are especially disadvantaged. We also know that nationally, chronic homelessness is projected to increase by 49% over the next four years. In Douglas County, women and people of color are disproportionately affected by homelessness. Having multiple marginalized identities also increases someone's vulnerability to harm. Homelessness causes trauma. When someone loses their housing, their entire life changes. Homelessness increases the risk of violence victimization. Most, if not all, homeless individuals have previously been exposed to high levels of traumatic stress. All effective services for people experiencing homelessness must account for trauma. Traditional approaches to homelessness attempt to address people's trauma first and use housing as a reward for complying with treatment. Such approaches fail because people cannot improve physically or psychologically while they're actively experiencing the trauma of homelessness. These approaches are among the most expensive and least effective. So what's not working? Treatment first models, which require things like sobriety or mental health treatment before being deemed ready for housing, fail to address homelessness as trauma. Another model that does not work is criminalizing trauma behavior and public nuisances that do not pose immediately immediate safety threats. 
Across the U.S., an arrest occurs every three seconds. 80% of those arrests are for nonviolent conduct that's associated with poverty, homelessness, and mental illness. This type of policing deteriorates relationships between homeless residents and police and pushes people experiencing homelessness out of public spaces. This forces them to the edges of society where they are, they are more vulnerable to violence. So how should we address homelessness? Housing First Solutions offer safety, stability, privacy, and dignity. These solutions can reduce chronic homelessness and lead to cost savings for communities by reducing spending on hospitals, jails, police, and social services that only provide Band-Aid solutions. The chart here shows the organizational structure at LCS. In the emergency shelter program, LCS offers beds in a trauma-informed environment as people transition out of homelessness. After someone arrives at LCS, they meet with their inreach manager first to identify their barriers to housing, such as missing ID for job or housing applications. Then they work with their housing navigator to acquire suitable housing and receive help with the application process. After discharge, a client continues to receive case management from their housing stabilization manager. When people stay housed, when they have stability, they're much less likely to return to the shelter. Other departments at LCS support these direct services. Community engagement includes fundraising, volunteer programming, and building community partnerships. Operations include financial management, kitchen services, and facilities maintenance. HR support boosts staff recruitment, retention, and the provision of training. Barriers to housing can include low income, poor credit, disability, or complex trauma. However, the housing team works with people to overcome these barriers. These stories illustrate the impact of housing-focused shelter. Mary's biggest barrier to housing was accessibility. Having struggled with chronic homelessness, she used a wheelchair and needed a ramp, low countertops, and wide doorways to meet her needs. Her housing navigator spent months searching for an affordable, accessible apartment where she now has independence and real hope for the future. Bob was an older adult with dementia living in poverty. He needed lots of support for his daily care. He lived at LCS for two years and suffered from poor hygiene. For months, his inReach manager worked with several different agencies involved in adult protective services and finally got him enrolled in a suitable nursing home. Bob looks much happier and healthier now in a facility fully equipped to handle his needs. However, this outcome was only possible after the housing team was introduced at LCS. For a full picture of the work at LCS, we'd like to tell you about how we've overcome challenges and how we hope to serve this community in the future. First, I have to say that we overhauled the entire program structure at LCS in order to transition to a housing-focused shelter. This process required a lot of learning and relearning everything about how our shelter works. To top it all off, during this transition, we've had to constantly adapt to the changing context of the pandemic. The old model focused solely on the provision of emergency shelter and basic needs. This was increasingly expensive, achieved little impact with relatively high rates of recidivism, offered no professional training standards for staff, and pushed the limits of capacity by, by diminishing safety standards. In the past, sleeping mats lined the entire shelter, including the hallways and the dining room. This was never safe, and the old model of sheltering was never designed to be sustainable. Today, LCS uses a housing-first framework to operate a housing-focused shelter. We have developed updated guidelines, training, and new tracking tools. The shelter is now safer and more trauma-informed. The housing team offers critical services for overcoming housing barriers and promoting housing stability, which in turn reduces recidivism rates and delivers lasting impact. With support from donors and volunteers, our staff is more empowered than ever to focus on their work. I'd like to emphasize that housing-focused programs lead to more funding opportunities through federal grants that only apply to housing services. 
However, any cuts to this programming to increase capacity would effectively shrink available funding streams. While some may think increasing capacity would help address homelessness in the community, this is not a long-term solution and does not slow down the growing population. Instead, it only raises the cost of daily shelter services and moves impoverished residents out of the public eye. Our goal is not just to bring people off the streets. LCS operates 24-7 year-round with the goal of housing people quickly for long-term impact. In contrast, the Winter Emergency Shelter keeps Lawrence residents safe from the elements. In addition to being expensive, increasing capacity also increases risks associated with overcrowding. Diseases spread easily, higher incidents of conflict occur, and the absence of privacy negatively affects mental health over time. Many, if not all, homeless individuals have been exposed to high levels of traumatic stress, and the effects of overcrowding can exacerbate conditions for people struggling with trauma. Additionally, the shelter is not a permanent supportive housing solution for chronically homeless individuals with high acuity needs. Appropriate housing solutions must be made available to meet the housing needs of our community. Reducing the average length of stay at the shelter and, ho and housing people also enables us to serve a greater number of people as more exit the shelter into housing. I'd like to share a quote that shows why some people choose to live on the streets over shelter. All I can say is that my fear of the unknown of what might be waiting for me at that shelter was worse than my fear of the known risk, you know, of staying out on the street. That was where I was comfortable. I don't want to give the impression that everyone in the shelter is bad, but you have a lot of people with a lot of problems. And so when you cram them all together, you just have one big problem. That's why I'm a big fan of smaller scattered sized shelters where people can get more focus on what they need to get help. Burnout is a prolonged response to chronic emotional and interpersonal stressors on the job. Although burnout can be experienced in various prof professions for various reasons, it is experienced disproportionately high amongst entry-level staff within the homelessness ser emergency service provider sector. Frontline staff encounter people with diverse trauma backgrounds, which means they need training related to mental health, cultural competency, and trauma-informed care. The addition of a dedicated HR role has already enhanced staff communication, recruitment practices, and the provision of training. Despite this, entry-level frontline staff retention remains challenging due to insufficient funding to provide competitive entry-level wages. Other jobs in the retail sector offer higher pay for a far less stressful work environment. Low barrier shelter benefits from lower staff to client ratios with highly qualified trained staff. In many communities and their shelters, the role of frontline staff is often entry level and or low paid in the homeless service system. This needs a rethink. The role of frontline staff is too often undervalued. Melissa will finish the presentation from here. Thank you, Lacey. Hello, everyone. My name is Melissa Botts. I'm the Interim Executive Director and Director of Shelter Programs for LCS. I'll start by saying that most of the data from 2019 and prior was poorly tracked and based on paper records that could not easily be reviewed for accuracy. Policies and data tracking were confusing, unclear, or unwritten. When I became the Interim Executive Director in late 2021, there was still a lot of work to do and a lot to catch up on. <clears throat> Today, New internal systems will allow improved collaboration, organization, fiscal visibility, compliance, and reporting of funds and all associated data. LCS currently has a team that understands the importance of these standards and is dedicated to seeing them through. In 2021, LCS implemented a 90-day stay shelter model in accordance with best practices. 
LCS projected that 75% of individuals staying longer than 90 days would be exited into permanent housing. LCS exceeded this goal with 98% of these individuals exited into permanent housing in 2021. People may stay longer than 90 days when awaiting for a lease to start. In 2021, 115 total individuals were placed into permanent housing out of the 422 people served. LCS projected that we would serve 30% of individuals with housing stabilization in the first year of housing specific funding in 2021 and increase this percentage into 2022. We nearly accomplished this goal with 27% of individuals placed into permanent housing. Despite having a lower capacity, LCS is able to serve a larger number of people as the average length of stay has decreased and new people enter the shelter as others exit to housing. Prior to 2020, any housing assistance that occurred was through informal efforts of staff with no training or outside agencies. Many people were um, also exited to couch surfing, not stable housing. Here you can see a steep increase in the number of people housed over the last two years. LCS also projected to reduce its 2019 average length of stay, which was 89 days. The average length of stay was reduced to 43.1 days through a successful Housing First framework. The recidivism rate for people returning to shelter was also reduced from 35% in 2019 to just 9.3% in 2021, a reduction of 25.7%. If not for the focus on housing and stabilization case management, reducing recidivism to this extent may not have been possible. The outcomes and goals in this proposal directly support and align with three of the five outcomes listed in the Lawrence Strategic Plan. Strong welcoming neighborhoods, safe and secure, and prosperity and economic security. The work at LCS directly aligns with the strategy to create lasting solutions to connect people to housing to make homelessness a rare, brief, and one-time experience. All frontline staff, especially entry-level staff, must be trained to skillfully support mental, behavioral, and physical well-being of community members. And if we are to ensure greater economic opportunities amongst historically marginalized populations and communities, this should include the whole of the population ex experiencing homelessness, along with associated stigmas. And many in the population hold intersectional identities based on race, disability, gender, and or other protected classes. Now that we've made so much progress, LCS has no plans of returning to an ineffective and unsafe shelter model. Trauma-informed design helps lower the levels of stress a person is experiencing, decrease maladaptive coping behaviors, increase feelings of safety, promote healing, and reduce the likelihood of re-traumatization. Stable housing directly impacts health outcomes. Studies show that people experiencing chronic homelessness have a lower life expectancy than others by over 25 years. Housing improves health and saves lives. Based on current local and national trends in poverty and homelessness, housing-focused services are needed now more than ever. Thank you for listening to this update. I'd also like to thank all of our supporters for making this work possible. When we work together with our outstanding staff members, volunteers, and donors, we achieve more. I appreciate our city commissioner's attention, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Mayor, this is Vice Mayor. I've got a couple of questions. <clears throat> Can you speak a little bit of, uh, I mean, you guys are, you're calling it housing first model versus, and I know the city commission as well as the county commission has actually uh, 
um, voted to um, follow the built for zero model. Could you explain the difference or is if there is any difference between those? Yeah, no, um, I, the built for zero also follows the housing first model. So they align okay, so they're, together. They're the same. Okay. Yep. One of your slides, I was wondering if you could go back to Melissa. It's the yeah, one where you had um, the number of guests versus the number of housed. It was a little graph. Let me look. Just a second. No, is it this, <clears throat> this one? Um, yeah, that was it. Yeah, that was it. There. Can you? Um, uh, yeah. It it looked because you see on the left hand side it says you you house ninety eight percent of into permanent housing. That's what I'm reading. But on the right side, when I'm looking at twenty twenty one, it looks like you housed only one hundred fifteen. Not that that's only, but one hundred fifteen of the four hundred twenty two. Is am I reading those wrong or? So the 98% is those staying longer than 90 days. A typical emergency shelter model is a 90-day stay. So those that stay beyond that, um, we have several outcomes with our grants to where at least 75% of those um, individuals that stay longer than 90 days should be exited to permanent housing and not the streets. Okay, okay, that helps out. Then the other question I had, um, when you say there's 422 guests that you served last year, is that are those separate individual persons or are there repeat numbers? Yes. Or those, are um, those are separate individual persons, both at the um, emergency winter shelter we did at Econo Lodge and at the um, at our main facility. Okay, thank you. One more question: um, Can yeah. you let me know what the status of the Monarch Village is as to um, how many it's housed or there is housing now? Yeah, so we initially opened our um, family shelter on a pilot program with two families that we got housed through that program. Um, then with, um, you know, the Delta virus um, variant and with COVID, we put our family program on hold. Um, so we have been using that space for isolation of positive cases. Um, so we've had, you know, anywhere between, you know, one to a couple guests out there. Um, we're also using it. We're, right now, we're kind of exploring other ways. Um, this is going to be, you know, a continued conversation with leadership and with our board on how we can best utilize Monarch Village. Um, you know, the, now that we're hopefully seeing a decline in COVID, um, so we're also um, exploring different ways of using it with, um, you know, clients and testing out almost a transitional living um, program to where we could you know, have clients, um, you know, learn life skills and stuff they need before those higher acuity clients before they maybe find housing. Um, we also have guests that maybe have higher medical needs. Um, you know, we had a client with a wound vac or somebody that was getting some in-home medical care a couple days a week um, that we put out there, maybe somebody that's immunocompromised. So we're exploring ways and we are using a couple of the units. We've also had several, um, maintenance issues out there. We've had pipes burst. Um, you know, we've had trouble with the temperatures. So, um, you know, we're, we're also working out on how we can best use that um, facility with, um, you know, the maintenance issues that we're experiencing as well. I think you're muted, Vice Mayor Larson. I can't see. Okay, there we go. Yeah, thank you very much. That's all I had. Sorry.
Mayor Shibley, other questions? Commissioner Finkelai, um, a few questions. And thank you for the presentation. Thanks for, for what you're doing. Um, obviously, as Commissioner Lawson mentioned, and as you know, the you know we've committed as a county um, and as a city, you know, to the housing first, built for zero model. And I know there's been a lot of work going into that amongst many of the organizations, um, many of which we fund and others fund. How has your operation um, integrated with that and and worked with those entities in um, getting people housed from the from the shelter? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we uh, LCS has not been um, involved as much with um, built for zero. Um, that's something that we need to um, get involved in. Um, but we do work with other agencies on. Um, on housing, we attend the coordinated entry system meetings um, each week, or they're every other week. And then also um, every other week, we attend a um, Douglas County care coordination meeting as well, where we discuss kind of harder cases and um, you know different um, client housing options. And um, so we're involved in that. Um, you know, we've worked with the housing authority with vouchers. We're also working, um, you know, with Burt Nash with Family Promise. We've um, helped Family Promise in housing a couple clients recently. Um, we've also been working more with, you know, the United Way and having some meetings with them. Um, we've worked with Housing Stabilization Collaborative and Catholic Charities on some prevention. Um, we'd like to get more. Um, hopefully seek more funding at some point for prevention funding so we can keep people housed and prevent them from becoming homeless in the first place. Um, so yeah, we've been working with a lot of community partners and um, I think that we can only continue to um, strengthen that relationship. Commissioner Finkelai, thank you for that. Do, do, um, do you, besides the voucher program with the housing authority, do any of those organizations help you house your people or do you house them all yourself in the permanent housing. Yeah, um, Melissa Botts, LCS. Um, we are um, we're housing them all right now with our rapid rehousing funds. So um, we're doing the housing. We have housing navigators in house and housing stabilization case managers that work on that. Commissioner Finkelai, and I know you have some grants for that. Um, two questions related to the grants. When do those rapid rehousing funds? Um, have to be spent by and to all some of those funds being used to pay the navigators or is that separate from um, the, the is, is the is the grants or the those just purely um, rehousing dollars? Melissa Bots, LCS. Um, we are um, the rapid rehousing um, funds end in June. Um, we did get awarded money for um, 2022, we got significantly less funding for that. And it's not because we did anything wrong or there was anything that happened. We just are experiencing a lot less funding coming in, um, you know, when we originally had a lot of COVID funding. So we have um, specific CV COVID funding with that as well. That we're, That's why we have an influx of that funding at the moment. But that ends in June. And yes, our housing navigator's salary is covered with that. Our housing stabilization case manager um, their salary is covered by a different, um, the CDBG community um, block grant. And Commissioner Finkelai, thank you for that. You know, and I know you and I've had 
some conversations offline, but you use the term tonight, um, housing focused shelter. Um, and when I, when I look at, you know, national information, go to national conferences and stuff, I mean, that's a, I mean, I've heard that term before. Um, so do you not consider yourself an emergency shelter as, as defined, you know, as the, you know, the interagency um, coalition on housing uses that term as an emergency shelter. Do you not consider yourself that anymore? Um, I would still consider us an emergency shelter with just a housing focused framework as an evidence-based best practice. And um, Commissioner Finkelai, last question. Um, I, I know you're aware of the 2019 you know, report that came out from SSNC and Erica Dvorsky, um, you know, that was implemented, you know, that and both the city and the county increased their funding for that implementation. Um, and, you know, some point after that, um, you know, the models started to change. And I think you said tonight, you don't really want to go back to the old model. Is, is that what you're saying? You don't want to go back to, um, what was discussed back in 2019 and that kind of emergency model? Um, Melissa Butts, LCS. Um, in reference to what we don't want to go back to, we don't want to go back to an overcrowded shelter where we, um, you know, again, where disease and um, conflict and, um, you know, we don't even have the sleeping space for that many people. So we just want to make sure that we're doing things um, with safety in mind for our clients, first and foremost, clients and staff. So. Commissioner Finkler, thank you for that. I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you. This is Commissioner Sellers. Um, this question is for Lacey. It, in your you, the slides that you presented on, I didn't catch what you said, but it was something in regards to supportive housing. Could you go back to those comments? I mean, you, you were talking so quickly, I, I didn't catch it. Because that PowerPoint wasn't part of, I didn't see that as part of our packet, so. I think it just got recently added to the agenda. I think Danny added it just recently and we sent it to her. Um, were you thinking of this slide? Yeah. It was just something you said, bro. You just kind of glossed over supportive housing, and I wasn't sure. Permanent supportive housing. If you look at yeah. that, if that, if you look at that graph, kind of on the lower left there on the side, mm -hmm. um, it shows how when you increase permanent supportive housing that's available in a community, your chronic homeless population decreases, right. and so those have an inverted relationship. Uh, permanent supportive housing, and, and Melissa might also be able to speak a little more to this, uh, permanent supportive housing is um, considered the most appropriate solution for people that experience chronic homelessness, long-term homelessness, who have higher acuity needs, more complex trauma. And you can see that kind of in the little infographic as well, that for long-term chronic homelessness that's due to uh, trauma related to being a veteran, disability, mental health and substance use, uh, the recommended solution is permanent supportive housing. And um, this is something that also came up, I think, in the Douglas County interim needs report. We don't currently have any permanent supportive housing in our community, but that's something that 
um, is identified as a good solution that would help with our chronic homeless population. Uh, yeah. And if Melissa wants to add anything to that, she can. I think you covered it well, Lacey. This is Commissioner Sellers. Thank you. I know that we there's been some discussion within different groups around what permanent supportive housing would look like, you know, in, in our community and working collaboratively on, on addressing that. So I'm, I'm glad you guys brought that up. In the slide that um, Vice Mayor Larson uh, referenced, and, and I, again, just because, and it's not necessarily something particular on the slide, it's something that you said, and I wanted to make sure I captured it correctly. When you say number of guests served and number of guests housed, how are you defining housed? We're defining housed as um, permanent housing. It's They're put into actual housing that is their own and it's stable and they have case manage management after that. And uh, Melissa can jump in if she needs to here. But when you look at previous years, 2019 and 2020, uh, in, in 2019, I think um, when you look at some of our past annual reports, it showed a higher number of people housed. And when we went and looked at those records, the actual number of people put into actual permanent housing was only about 31, whereas the rest of them were actually exited into couch surfing, which is a form of hidden homelessness. And so we really we weren't really helping all that many people uh, way, way back then under the old model when we didn't have these housing services. Um, and as, as Melissa said, uh, most of the people who did get housed back then, that was either through more informal support from staff who didn't have the housing focused training, uh, or it was through visiting case managers. And then when you look at 2022, or when you look at 2020, um, we have a larger number of people housed there. Uh, however, 52 out of 62 people housed in 2020, uh, that was through some one-time emergency COVID funds, I think. 52 out of 62 were housed because we wanted, we needed to get our families with children out of that congregate setting as soon as the pandemic started. And so not a whole lot of people housed in 2020 either. 2021, I think it was kind of mid-2021 is when our housing team really got fully established and really started getting, getting everything rolling. When you look at this next slide here, uh, it's kind of reflective of this slide before of the percentage of people housed relative to the total number of people served. And so you can see that that climbs up significantly. Um, first in 2020, when we got that one-time funding to get all of our families with kids housed, and then um, and then really climbing up again in, in 2021 when we're actually implementing our housing focused. Um, so we're we're really excited about about these outcomes and being able to provide more of these housing focused services in the future. Commissioner Sellers, thank you for that clarification. Yeah, and Melissa Botts, LCS. Oh, sorry, I was going to just touch on that a little bit. Um, we do have um, we did get significant um, significantly more housing related funds in 2021. So we had several different funding sources for that. We had affordable housing advisory board funds. We had some funds from the United Way, and then we had our rapid rehousing funds. Um, so with more access to housing funds, we were able to serve more people. Just to add that on there, Mayor Shipley, I'm having. Uh, I'm not quite understanding where you're finding units outside of the other partners that we've talked about. 
um, other than the monarch units. So you're saying um, you permanently housed this 98%. Where did they go? Um, Melissa Botts, LCS. So um, they went with private landlords. Um, our housing team, our housing navigators, um, work with landlords in the community doing landlord engagement. We also work with um, our partners at the Housing Authority on landlord engagement. We attend some community landlord engagement meetings um, where they put out, um, you know, available rental lists. So that's really where the housing team, the housing navigators, and the housing stabilization case managers are key because they actually go and work with these landlords and advocate for the clients and their barriers, whether they have felonies, um, you know, or past evictions. Um, it's us going to landlords and explaining our funding, advocating for our clients and getting them onto their own leases. This is Commissioner Sellers. So when, when you're doing that, so funds that you're drawing down then, so someone is, you're, you're getting them, they're in the shelter, you're needing to transition them into permanent housing. So then you're looking to housing authorities list of what they have available, working in the community, the fine units. And so I assume that then the dollars that you're pulling down for housing services, i.e. vouchers are being used then to supplement you know, in most of these cases, are, are those funds, are you then using funds to help supplement the cost of, of housing for individuals that are being housed? Melissa Botts, LCS, yes. Um, we have different programming with the different funding streams. Um, but um, as for like rapid rehousing, um, we, um, the client, if they have an income, then they would pay 30% of that. Although income doesn't, um, you know, it's it's housing for a slow barrier. We don't require any, um, you know, any income. It's hard to sell it with a landlord when they don't have income, but that's where our advocacy comes into place. So um, that's where we say, hey, we have this funding stream that allows for this amount of funding. And we explain to the different landlords our different housing policies and procedures and say, we can cover this much funding up to this point. And while we're doing that, our stabilization case managers, that's where they're doing most of the stabilization, helping connect them to jobs, helping connect them to, you know, whatever services they need, whether that be mental health, addiction, um, you know, whatever their barriers are. So um, while we're helping pay for the housing funds, you know, they're working on those barriers. And then the goal is to when they're off of, um, you know, that assistance, you know, that they'll be self-sustaining or maybe get on a housing authority voucher, um, you know, with their long wait lists or something like that. So um, it's it's different for every person for um, the different funding streams, but that's about how it works. And this, uh, thank you. And so Commissioner Sellers, one last, question, one last question. So if someone comes into LCS and you're identifying them, if, you know, from a collaborative standpoint, if you see that this is a person that could be better served with the housing authority, do you then provide a warm handoff to the housing authority or if they're a family that could be better served by family promises, are there warm handoffs to partners in the community that are doing where there's some overlap that you're, that you can say, we can serve you, but you might be better served here. So let us warm, let us pass you to this organization. Sorry. <laughs> 
Uh, Melissa Botts, LCS. Yes, um, we work collaboratively with um, all the different agencies and we identify what funding stream is best for them and their situation. And we also take into account client choice. Um, you know, they have choice in what they do and, you know, we empower them in their own choices. So um, we can express the different funding streams and the different options and resources available to them. And then at the end of the day, it's their choice and, and we kind of, we lead with that. Commissioner Littlejohn, um, I just had a quick question. Uh, before those positions, the, the stabilization position and the, the case manager position, how were those people funneled before or were they uh, to the respective organizations that might be able to help them? Melissa Botts, LCS. Um, before, I, um, you know, they had their in-reach manager, um, which is kind of like our case manager. It's um, a care coordination model. Um, and um, you know, I wasn't there at that time, but, you know, we weren't, we weren't getting a lot of people into housing um, at that time. Um, most of the people that we were getting into housing were families through a specific voucher through the housing authority. Um, so the in-reach manager would connect them to services, um, but we weren't seeing a lot of um, housing outside of just relying on those other agencies. Thank you, Melissa. Appreciate it. Mayor Shipley, any other uh, questions for now before we move to public comment? All right, Sherry, is there anyone there in the room? Uh, no, Mayor. Uh, oh, I see some hands. So Sherry, I'll let you do that. Is that Megan? Megan? Yes, hello. Uh, did you say my name? Yes. Hello there. Yes, thank you so much for calling on me. So um, part of my public comment, a uh, wonderful speech by both Lacey and Melissa. I enjoyed it very, very much. Um, uh, some of the things that stood out to me were definitely just how effective LCS has been lately in getting people housed, um, especially with um, the budget. And I noticed with those graphs that even though the money has gone down from last year for their funding, they were still able to house more people than from last year. It is definitely my hope that soon LCS will be able to get even more money very soon because it, and they've proven time and time again that being able to have more money equals being able to house more people in an effective and consistent manner where they are able to get access to the um, facilities and care and treatment that they need to be able to continue leading happy, healthy lives. Um, I definitely hope that soon in the future LCS will be able to hire more people or even as was one comment that was mentioned in Lacey's part of the PowerPoint, that maybe we could even have a second homeless shelter somewhere within Lawrence. I know that currently the Lawrence Community Shelter is sadly very, very much on the outskirts of town, which unfortunately makes it even harder for many of uh, our homeless population to be able to go and access the shelter to get their needs. And even then, when they need something such as a job, it makes it harder for them to access uh the job uh be able to go get there so i think it'd be wonderful in the future if uh lcs was able to have enough funding to open up a second shelter i think that it would sound uh, wonderful to be able to get a lot of different uh help out a lot of more people i truly hope that uh yeah the partnership between uh, lcs 
and the uh, city of Lawrence is able to continue to grow and we're able to continue this wonderful uh, helping people. Thank you so very much for listening to me. Jenna Gross. Hi, this is Jenna Groth. Um, I was an AmeriCorps member at Lawrence Community Shelter 2015 to 2016. And this past summer, I returned as a staff member. I'm here on my own time, just talking about how much I've seen this organization grow over the past five years. Um, so as Melissa and Lacey were saying, um, five years ago, there were 125 guests. Um, some of them were sleeping on thin mats on a concrete floor. There were bed bugs. I can't tell you how many meetings we had just talking about the bed bugs, how much wasted time there were for guests, you know, who couldn't get a good night's sleep because, you know, they were itching and scratching and, you know, just weren't in a safe living condition. Um, you know, there were fights, there was increased trauma. It was pretty common for me um, between when I left my car and when I would get to my office. Um, it was pretty common for me to get already get approached by guests just vying for my attention because they felt really unsafe. Um, I think our staff was doing the best that we could, but there was no real um, there was no real guiding philosophy. There was kind of no method. Sorry, did am I the only one who can't hear her, or did she cut out? She froze up. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry, Jenna. Could you go back just a beat? Okay. Um, so um, there was a time when we just had a meeting, uh, you know, back in 2016, and just decided everybody gets the same move out date, which I think was like a month away. And then when that came up, about two thirds of the guests were exited. About a third weren't. I couldn't really figure out why those third weren't, but they still have that shared trauma of this entire agency just completely changing without really putting any thought process to it. Um, and that was that's very much different from the 90-day model now. It was just kind of this impulsive choice. Um, now, uh, when I came back over the summer, I was really impressed. Uh, the 90-day stay is evidence-based. Um, People are getting housed. It is cleaner. It is safer. There are no bed bugs. Um, people do have beds. Um, you know, just this past week, I saw two guests um, that I really care about have gotten housed. And that makes me just really happy. Um, and, you know, this past week, we also were moving an entire dorm to another, um, the entire room full of people to another dorm and you know I, I do a lot of community um, engagement you know volunteer management and you know I was just checking on some volunteers at that time I was saying you know hey you know this is kind of a hectic day for us you know I apologize and you know they kind of said things were great you know things were just nice and orderly as they were you know learning their new volunteer work so I'm just really excited how it's looked to be outside of immediate crisis. Uh, there's still so much more to be done. Um, and I'm just really excited. Cecily McKenzie. Hi, um, thank you for your time. 
Um, in 2021, I also served as an AmeriCorps member at LCS, um, and I got to see firsthand um, all the great things that they've been doing. Um, as a member of our community, I hope to see us taking steps towards ensuring all our community members are provided a safe and healthy life. For anyone, the loss of their home is a devastating experience. On top of that, individuals experiencing a housing crisis face discrimination and stigmatization for being unhoused. All our community members deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, no matter an individual's housing situation. Our community members who are facing a housing crisis need compassionate, trauma-informed services that effectively address people's needs if we wish to foster trust in social services. Florence Community Shelter's housing first focus and trauma-informed model of care is pivotal to meeting our community members where they are. If the Lawrence City Commission approves the funding for the Lawrence Community Shelter, that would be a step in the right direction. Thank you for your time. Larissa Amundsen. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Larissa Amundsen, and I am the incoming treasurer of the Lawrence Community Shelter Board. Um, I support the city's funding of the shelter as well as additional planning with government and community organizations in order to, to develop long-term solutions to our community's homeless population. I'm off screen now. In the, in the two months I've worked with the shelter leadership, including Melissa, Lacey, and Melanie, I've really been inspired by their passion and work ethic. Combating the homeless problem in our community is more complex than I could have imagined. It requires us to work together as a community to care for one of our most vulnerable populations. As Melissa, as Melissa shared, the shelter is actively working on those partnerships with other organizations in our community. This funding is critical for providing a safe shelter and housing first approach for our community members experiencing homelessness. We hope you support this work by approving this funding. Thank you for your time. Sophia Nangia. Sorry. Okay. Hi. Um, I just wanted to thank everyone um, for being here today and Lacey and Melissa for sharing all their insight. I have been working as a direct service advocate for LCS. Um, for almost a year now. And before that, I volunteered and interned. And so LCS has a special place in my heart. Um, as a future as a future social worker, seeing what LCS does and the housing first model is extremely important for um, the eradication of homelessness um, and the care that all of the staff have shown towards the clients and getting them housed. And um, as me being a direct service advocate, seeing those clients that I interact with on a day-to-day -day basis and make a rapport with seeing them housed and seeing them grateful it is such a rewarding aspect of my life. And having that funds that um, the city will give to Lawrence would be a great addition and will really, really help um, the shelter. And I know those funds will go to great use. So I just wanna thank you for letting me talk today. Ben Gillig. Well, um, thank you for taking the time for listening. Um, and thank you to Lacey and Melissa for the great presentation. Um, so I have been volunteering off and on at the community shelter um, for almost two years now. I also interned with them um, this last summer. Um, and I just wanted to echo um, a lot of the things that have already been said about the great work that I've got to personally see 
um, from the community shelter, um, specifically um, seeing people moved into permanent housing um, is just a really awesome experience that I've got to see. And I think the main thing I wanted to highlight was um, just the hard work of the staff um, at the community shelter. Um, they really work their tails off over there um, and all just for the sake of getting people housed. Um, many of them are working, you know, the job that requires actually two people, but it's going to the work of one person um, and they're working, you know, extra hours on a weekly basis. Um, and it's obviously not for the money. Um, it's just because they're passionate about what they do. Um, and I think if they were to receive additional funding from the city, um, that, that would just go to greater programs um, at the community shelter and also um, greater funding for the staff so they can continue that awesome work, um, have better training for the staff and also um, allow them to um, retain staff um, on a um, just on a more consistent basis. Um, so they're reducing that turnover there. Um, so yeah, thank you all for listening um, and considering this proposal. And I really hope um, that um, you approve the additional funding that's being requested. Thank you. Dan Zarazin. Uh, yeah, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Well, first, Madam Mayor, Commission, um, how about that awesome presentation that Lacey and Melissa put together? Um, you know, I, uh, I've been a volunteer, uh, started volunteering May 2020 at Lawrence Community Shelter. I'm also a bus driver for, uh, for students, so I uh, provide bus services for our, our school kiddos in Lawrence, and I'm proud to be a resident. Um, but um, uh, here's what really struck me when I started volunteering. Um, everybody's referred to as guests. They're not referred to as homeless people or people in need. And they're treated with such dignity and respect. Um, it's a very professional staff that I've witnessed there. You know, I've spent, I'm semi-retired, so I've spent a good portion of my life in Fortune 500 Fortune 100 companies and uh, um, the the professionalism is is uh, absolutely astounding, um, especially during COVID management. Um, they went out of their way to make sure people felt safe and welcome. Uh, what I personally witnessed was guests that found a place that was safe. Um, they found help to find employment. They found help to find a new home. Uh, they obtained credentials that they might not have had. Uh, some of these people come in there and they don't have a social security card for some reason, or they're missing a birth certificate, or uh, you know they don't have their driver's license. This staff goes out of their way to find a way to get obtain these credentials. They get medical attention. I worked the front desk at the shelter and, you know, I would see nurses visit to take care of some people that had ailments that were in the shelter. Um, the resources are amazing. They continue to make sure that people that 
uh, are experiencing challenges with drug or alcohol support, make sure they continue to get that support and stay free. Um, one-on-one -on -one counseling is very impressive at the shelter. So uh, um, uh, look, the staff doesn't work there for the money. They work there because they love their job. They work there because they're serving us. They're helping us. We need them. Please give them the funding. Thank you. M. Hole. Hi, good evening, everybody. Um, so I wanted to speak today um, as a volunteer for the community shelter. Um, I first started with the community shelter right after the pandemic began. Um, I was working in the garden. Um, it was one of the few ways that I could find to be involved in my community while still being conscious of my health and the things that I learned, even just out working in the garden, I didn't have much contact with any of the guests at the shelter, but um, working with Lacey and hearing what she had to say, it was an issue that I hadn't explored yet in my work with nonprofits. And it was something that I was very excited to learn about. Um, and over the years, as I've gotten to know Lacey, um, I'm the president of the Nonprofit Service Club at KU. And one of the things that we do is we work with nonprofits to place students in more behind the scenes roles. So working with them and seeing the complex operations that are going on within this organization, they really know what they're doing. And I'm just amazed that, you know, we are able to provide volunteers on such a deep level for these programs that are changing the way we think about homelessness in Lawrence. Um, it's, it's a different approach from what has been in previous years. And so to see this and see the direction that they're moving is, is really incredible. Um, one thing that stood out to me, I'm a senior in business analytics. These data tracking systems that they are putting into place and getting those numbers to answer your questions, those will be so, so crucial to their growth in the future. And that's something that, you know, I look at that and I see an organization that is is growing. Um, I've worked with a lot of organizations in the area and that's not something that I have seen in a lot of these organizations. So the fact that they are so forward thinking um, to be trauma informed, to look to this data, to have a critical thinking approach is um, something that I find to be really, really important and promising for their work in the future. So thank you. That's all the public comment, Mayor. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you, everyone. Mayor, Mayor Shipley, you're on mute. Awesome. Uh, thank you, everyone. Um, and uh, let's bring it back to the commission for discussion uh, or any further questions. Commissioner Finkelheide, Danny, I saw you turn your camera on. Did you have anything to add before we go into discussion? Uh, Danny Walters, uh, no, I, just in case you had any more questions for me, I was making myself available. So. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. I have 
some thoughts, but if anyone else wanted to jump in. This is um, Go ahead. Your finger guy. Go ahead, Brad. Um, first, I'd say very much appreciate the presentation and appreciate you know what Melissa and um, Jancy and all the all the all the work goes out there are doing. Um, you know, obviously, I'm a big believer in housing first. I think all of us are big believers in housing first. Um, the information of of the benefits of housing first undisputed. Um, and we are implementing that and need to implement that in our city. And so, you know, I, I certainly appreciate what they're doing at LCS, appreciate what they're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, however, I would say that, you know, the whole community now is working on implementing housing first. And, you know, back in 2019 and before, we weren't all on the same page being the community, nor were we putting the resources in um, as we're doing today, not only local, um, city, county, federal money into housing first. And we're now, you know, obviously um, moving full speed ahead with that, both the city and the county. And we're waiting for the housing plan to come out so we can even more fully implement that as part of our strategic plan and part of a commitment that both the city and the county have made. And so, you know, I, you know, I think we're in a, in a position that's a little different than we were in 2019 when, um, you know, there wasn't those sorts of services um, being provided by the whole community. And so, you know, I mean, again, I think what, what LCS is doing right now is great for LCS and great for those 40 people um, that they're currently housing. You know, my concern is a, a bigger issue, a bigger issue of, of the entire community, of our entire plan, of our entire Housing First initiative. You know, um, and, and, and part of that plan, and, and we're gonna know for sure when it comes out in May, but part of that plan is, and at least in the short run, not in the long run, because Housing First in the long run says you don't need an emergency shelter. But in the short run, you need an emergency shelter. And you need a location where you can house people um, and get them and, and use all the folks in your community to get them housed. And, you know, we know from the winter shelter, we know from the first implementation of the, the housing study from KU um, that we do not have enough emergency beds in this community. Um, and so, you know, I, I think about it as, you know, we all know that that in the healthcare field, right, early prevention, early primary care physicians, if you want to say, how is somebody best served in the medical setting, they're best served um, going to a primary care physician, they're best served having preventative care, um, and everyone agrees with that. But does that mean the city has only you know, preventative care in their community. No, they need an emergency room. And, and they need an emergency room to be part of that entire system to make the entire system work. And and we need in this community, um, you know, that emergency shelter, and we need more than 40 beds to do that. We need more than 50 beds to do that now. 
Maybe two years from now we won't, um, but we need that more now. Um, and LC, LCS um, is the place that is um, zoned for that, and it's a place. It's the place that um, we um, have designated that in the long run. Now, if LCS doesn't want to do that, if they want 40 or 50, um, you know, we probably need to look at, as someone said, another place. But then how, you know, how are we going to fund that? And so, um, you know, I go back and think about the, the, the report done in 2019. In 2019, when LCS was having struggles, we, we came up with a plan that, that was put out by SSNC and put out um, paid for by the county and the city. And it said, you know, recommendation number one of that report was narrow the mission and the focus, focus only on emergency shelter. And it reached out and, and at that time, I'm looking at it now, you know, as presented by the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, a shelter in the crisis response system is to provide immediate access through coordinated entry to shelter and crisis services without barriers to entry as stable housing and supports are being secured. Is that as good as what LCS is doing today? Absolutely not. LCS is doing more, much more than um, offering emergency services and emergency crisis. And if you ask me what they're doing is better, if you had to compare the two, is it better than emergency services? Absolutely. So are they, they doing good work? Absolutely. My concern is we still need emergency services here. And it's either at LCS or it's at someplace else. And, you know, when we, in back in 2019, the city and the county both increased their funding by roughly $100,000 each to the 296 we're at now, asking for this plan to be implemented. And that plan, you know, said that they would house, the goal was to house um, 800 people a year. Um, and, um, you know, again, is that the right number? I don't know. But, um, you know, we're not there now. And so, you know, they, it also created a whole different model about the direct services and it, it, it counted on partners to house people. It counted on partners to do navigation, housing navigation, account on other partners to do um, rent and utility assistance and get people housed. So right now, LCS does that in-house and they do a good job of it. We're now as a community starting to create systems where um, Douglas County is running the rent and utility assistance. We, we are consolidating all those models together um, and, and, and not you know, having people specialize and do certain things and consolidate as a community. And I guess I just want to be sure that um, LCS is an integral part, however they're going to function, be an integral part of that entire system, not being there, the, you know, being and operating amongst themselves. And we need to figure out as a city commission, and it's not necessarily LCS's full responsibility, but we as a city commission, we as a community have to figure out the emergency sheltering component of this overall plan. And when the KU study comes out in May and everyone sits down the table, 
And the question is, where are we going to have, we need 80, we need 90 emergency beds a night. And we know from the winter shelter, we have people sleeping on the street tonight in the rain and the cold because we don't have any place to put them. We know they're out there. And if we need those emergency beds, where are they going to be? And, um, you know, LCS has a facility that historically did that. I hear what the current staff is saying, that that's not the best way to do it. Don't disagree. Um, but it's an answer we have to, it's a, it's a solution we have to come up with an answer to. And it's a situation that I think the community needs an answer to. And, um, you know, I think as the, the housing study comes out in, in May, we'll have a better sense of how everyone can work together to solve that, that problem. Um, and, and I just hope that, and I expect and don't have any doubt that LCS will be um, part of that solution and be at the table for that. But I think that's what we need to encourage and look ahead to towards. So I'll stop there for now and I've talked too long, but um, appreciate what LCS is doing. And we just need to make sure we're all on the same page um, and having a place to, um, you know, to, ha to emergency house folks. Um, I want to, since we're in the commissioner discussion part, uh, Melissa, I do see you. Um, uh, I want to make sure commissioners don't have further questions and, 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 and or ask you something specific and let you reply. Um, commissioners, is there, is there anything else you'd like to comment here? This is Commissioner Sellers. Just to clarify, you're wanting comments and questions or just questions? Well, we're, we're, uh, we did public comment and now we're back in discussion. It is unusual to return to, um, the public, but Melissa's not really the public. She's <laughs> uh, a very interested party. So I just want to make sure uh, every, that we're being uh, fair with everyone. So um, I wanted to make sure that commissioners didn't have any more comments or discussion um, or uh, commissioners specifically wanted to ask Melissa's comments. No, I, I had a comment, but I'll yield um, time to Melissa so that she can, can speak in on the matter. Absolutely. Thank you, um, commissioners and mayor, um, Melissa Botts, LCS. Um, so I just, you know, I kind of briefly touched on it in the presentation, but I just wanted to highlight that a lower capacity doesn't mean a lower amount of people served. Um, so, um, you know, as we said, we have reduced our length of stay. So getting people quickly into housing actually allows us to serve more people, opens up more beds. Um, so, um, you know, capacity is not tied to, the lower capacity is not tied to a lower amount of people served. So I just wanted to point that out. Mayor Shipley, uh, Commissioner Sellers, did you want to go ahead? Yeah, I, I, you know, I wanted to take a moment, you know, point of personal privilege just to say, I, you know, thank you to, you know, Melissa and to Lacey and to several who commented this evening. Um, um, in regards to this uh, agenda item, you know, um, you know, being one of the new commissioners and seeing this conversation kind of take shape and take form over the last year, I know, um, you know, there are some things I've, I've heard today that are promising that um, that uh, Commissioner Finkeldyke spoke to, and I've heard individuals this evening speak to and talk about you know, the rapport with guests and um, the level of professionalism and 
And, and those things should be celebrated. Those are bright spots that should be celebrated. Um, it also, I, I celebrate those, but I also celebrate them knowing that I have a concern that the old model didn't really elevate that. Um, and so I'm glad to hear that we're doing the things that we should be doing to humans because they're humans, regardless of what their situation is. Um, so I'm glad that the new model is incorporating uh, a, you know, a framework of treating humans with decency and not that it's an expectation to treat individuals because of their circumstances with professionalism and decency. So, you know, I do want to highlight that that bright spot and also recognize that that seems to be a concern that's, that was talked around and not talked to. And I can understand why, you know, that's the case. Um, I'm also hearing that we're moving from that LCS is moving from a model of chasing the pot of gold to let's build out a plan, let's have a model and let's come with the package and see if there's a funding model, a funding stream that fits the plan of which we want to accomplish. Um, so I, I see that and I recognize that. Um, and I think there's some decisions to be made about, you know, what that funding looks like, um, how long is that funding progressed you know, should be, you know, from a city perspective, what that funding looks like and, um, you know, the sustainability of that. Um, so I do, I, again, that's another bright spot that I, I want to, to highlight. And, you know, I see, I'm seeing some things turning the table, um, but not but. However, um, I think the, the elephant in the room that we haven't really discussed and um, we, we don't have community partners here to discuss it, and we're not part of those conversations um, to have those discussions, is to hear how the different services intertwine with each other, um, whether that's the, whether that includes the Housing Authority, Family Promise, Tennis to Homeowners, Burt Nash. Um, we have a lot of partners in this community that are doing some things alike, the same, um, uniquely different, and how the funding flows into that. We wanna make sure that that funding is, is tight and that we're using it efficiently and that there are no competing values. And so, you know, that's what I look forward to seeing with the homeless study um, and hearing more from partners because I don't have that clear picture in my mind right now. I'm seeing some good work coming out of LCS. I'm hearing individuals who are involved that can speak to and, and can attest to that with anecdotal stories. Um, but I, I need to see the bigger, I need to see how that looks in relation to partners. And I can, and I'm starting to see the story unfold, but I don't have a clear picture of it right now. But I do appreciate the leadership and what what's being done, Melissa and, and company with the board, what they're trying to do and what that looks like. So I, I feel like we're getting there and we're starting to see how the culture is changing or shifting um, at LCS. And, I, and this was the first step to getting it. Um, you know, it's sad that we didn't have this information months before, um, but we are getting it now. And, and I appreciate that. Mayor Shipley, um, any other comments from commissioners? Yeah, Mayor, just this is uh, Vice Mayor Larson, and 
And I want to thank Melissa and um, LCS for the work that they're doing, as well as the presentation tonight. It was very um, actually clarifying for me, and I really do appreciate that. And I, I would echo um, many of the comments that um, Commissioner Finkeldye talked about. He probably has the most um, in-depth knowledge, I think, of, of our housing situation or homeless situation in Norris. I know he's done many years of work in this in this area, so I do appreciate his thoughts on it. Um, from a historical standpoint, um, um, yeah, uh, Commissioner Finkeldad did talk about how before 2019, there just wasn't much structure. There was a lot of folks out there trying to do things, a lot of organizations trying to do things, and um, but we weren't working as a community to get it done. And I think we've just started to see that happen in the last year, uh, maybe maybe year and a half. And I think with both the county and the city adopting the built for zero model, which is the housing first model, that it is, is also represents another shift in us coming together as a community to um, address this issue. And I, and I do appreciate what I'm hearing from LCS tonight. I have not heard before the amount of structure that I'm hearing tonight. The, the, that there's a foundation that's definitely being built. Um, and I do appreciate that very much. Um, so I have not seen that in the past. Um, and I think with the with the models that have been adopted by the county and city, you know, one of the uh, features of it is that, that it's gonna take many community partners to, to effectively become, um, to, to address some of the, the homeless issues. And that each one of those community partners um, is responsible for, for a very, hopefully a very well-defined aspect of addressing it in that we each be held accountable for making sure that we're successful in that. And so I, that's where I see as a, one of our partners, um, LCS, that it's important that, that, that as you continue to develop um, your program, that, um, that you are successful in the implementation of that. And I think with the with the housing study that's being done, and we're going to hear about in May, that's going to provide, I'm hoping, um, a wealth of information on how we go to get how we go forward as a community. Um, um, so you know, you know, I appreciate what I heard tonight. It's definitely different than what I've heard in years past, and I'm really looking forward to continue to work with you um, in the community on this issue. Thank you very much. Mayor Shipley, um, any, any more comments? Uh, Commissioner Lil-John, I'll just be short. Uh, thank you guys for the presentation, it was excellent. Um, and it was uh, helped me clarify some points uh, on what the shelter is, what they've done, what they're doing and their, their path forward. Um, and also it's speaking to Commissioner Finkeldye and, and you know his um, concerns, which are very, very valid that, you know, especially when we hit surges, um, during the winter months and there really aren't places to stay and then whether it's inclement, what kind of solutions do we have? So that's a greater question that we we have to think about as well. But I'm hoping that with the with the study coming out that it'll provide us a little bit of a more of a guide on uh, where we are and um, what needs to be need to be addressed and what are the players and how do they fit in? So um, at least giving us a starting point. So um, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's it's uh, coming on to the commission and you learn a lot of new things. And it's just, this is just one of them. And I appreciate you guys being uh, patient with us. And uh, I look forward to having uh, more conversation about it.
This is Commissioner. Go ahead. Oh no, uh, this is Commissioner Sellers. Um, so I, I, I've been thinking about something that Commissioner Finkeldice said, and you know, we as a commission have the ability to set the parameters around this funding, and we want to make sure that we're being good stewards of that funding, and while also making sure that we we don't lose a resource um, in our community. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I feel comfortable that there, there are some things progressing at LCS, um, but I, I don't know, Commissioner Fiegel, I, you know, I, I would not be, I'm, I'm not opposed to funding, but is there, is there a possibility of partial funding until we get to a place where we feel comfortable with full allocation? I should say full allocation, where at least, you know, maybe releasing part of the funds or something along that line. Commissioner Finkeldye, do you kind of get what I'm going here? Commissioner Finkeldye, I mean, yes. I mean, I think the, the, the proposal um, before us is a six month, um, you know, funding with a reporting back. And then the question, you know, Danny asked us earlier is what sort of things do we want to see in that? You know, my, my big trigger is um, the housing report that we're all anxiously awaiting to come out in May um, to see what it says and what, what we need to be funding. I mean, we've been talking about that as what what we're going to fund going forward. And so, you know, as I think about, um, you know, what what we're going to do with this funding, you know, I think one, we need to see how it fits in with that report in May. And two, um, how LCS is working with all the other people in that, that um, realm in the homeless realm to solve these problems? And are they doing it in the most effective way possible? And are they part of the bigger plan? Um, you know, and so, um, you know, to me, I'd like, you know, at the end of this, and this is not all on LCS, this is, you know, our city staff, Danny, the entire community coming together, um, you know, as this plan comes out, I mean, we need to know how many emergency beds we need and if we need them, where are they coming from and who's going to provide them and how are we going to fund that? And that might mean we give more money than the $290,000 to the shelter. I'm not opposed to necessarily giving them more money to fund the plan that we decide we need to fund. Um, or maybe it's giving this same funding to LCS and funding a different shelter, maybe. Um, but we also, you know, we know those, you know, those, those a facility um, that we need to look at. And so I, I want to understand how that all fits together and what's the, the best way to implement housing force in the community. Um, so, you know, I, I guess to me, my big question is, you know, I would want to report back in three months after the, the thing comes in May and how everyone is working together um, and how does each one of these parts fit together um, 
you know, so if that reports in June or July or something, that's what I'd want to see. And, and, and I want to see that not to say we're going to withhold funding or something. I, I want to say, I, I want to say we need to know because what are we going to fund? What are we going to, maybe it's more money, maybe it's different money. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the targets I'd be, be looking at. What's the most cost-effective way to accomplish this? And again, in my opinion, the answer is going to be we need more emergency beds somewhere in this community um, until we can get housing first up and running. I think that's going to be the answer. And we need to know how LCS fits into that and how the rest of the community fits into that. That's my thought. This is Vice Mayor Larson. Could I just say something real quick? Um, it was my understanding from reading the proposal tonight, and maybe I read it wrong, is they are going to come back to us in August um, with um, with a report. Um, you know, what that report entails, I don't recall reading in detail on that, but is that what you're talking about, um, um, for them to come back at that time with that information? Commissioner Finkelbein, um I'm actually thinking about a shorter time frame than what's recommended in the report. Okay. Um, Vice Mayor Larson, so are you considering, or do you want to consider the idea that they come back with a response to the May report that's coming out as to how they're going to be a part of that implementation of that? Yes. Okay, got it. Um, Mayor Shipley, am I hearing a motion. Vice Mayor Larson, can I make one more comment, please? Yes, of course. Um, and so if they come back at a shorter time, when we get that report, is it going to be something where it's going to have to be discussed as a community before a decision is made? Because um, it seemed to me that it, it involves numerous organizations, this report will, and um, for LCS to come back and say, this is going to be our piece of it, and this is what we're going to do, it seems to me like there might be a community conversation first to make sure that everybody's on the same page for that versus LCS coming back, you know, in June or July to say this is what we're going to do. And, you know, again, I'm open to that. I just don't understand. I'm just not quite sure if that's we want LCS to come back before that community conversation is had. Commissioner Figlai, and I guess maybe Danny can weigh in on this as well to the extent she knows. No, I agree. It has to be part of the community conversation. That's the answer I want. I think the answer we need, the one, what the answer the community needs. Um, you know, um, what I. So yes. Yeah, so I don't know, Danny, if you have thoughts on what you think happens after the May report comes in. Uh, Danny Walters, Planning and Development Services. Um, the there will be a presentation made to the City Commission on that report. And um, my my thought is at that time, there will be a lot of conversation around around these different pieces and we can all start to kind of digest what the what the report is saying and how how things are kind of already fitting into that. So um, I think that you'll there'll be an update from how you know LCS fits into it at that time with the overall. Um, the overall presentation, but we can, you know, I can certainly work with Melissa to, you know, to bring back some some additional information in between now and and them presenting in September, if if you would like to see that. 
but I think I think the conversation will kind of organically happen with the with the needs assessment when it comes in. Commissioner Finkelheim, my only thought is I don't want to lock in funding until September if we know in June that we want to do something different. You know, I'd rather have this back on the agenda one way or the other. And again, I'm not saying this to say like it's going to go down. It, you know, it might go up or it might be something different. Um, you know, um, that's what I mean. I I feel some urgency about this, and and that's what I'm kind of pushing. So, Vice Mayor Larson. So, what I had understood about tonight was we were um, authorizing the release of half of the funding, and with the remainder of it to be author to be released um, after their next report, which would be August. Is that the case, or again, did I misinterpret that? Uh, Danny Walters, Planning and Development Services. That, that's how it's written. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, it's it, entirely your decision how you would like to see this funded. So um, we, we can certainly make changes to, to that if you would like to see that. So, so Vice, Vice, Vice Mayor Larson, so um, we aren't locking in all the funding at this time. It's just half the funding at, at this point in time. That's why I'm, that's what I'm hearing. This is Commissioner Sellers. If I understand Commissioner Finkelde correctly, we were never intending to lock in half. You're you're thinking about dispersing half of the first half of the funding, or ish. Commissioner Finkelai, I mean, I was thinking instead of six months, three or four months, yes. Right. So partial disbursement of the first half of the 290K. Vice Mayor Larson, I'm very confused now. So help me out. So the first half. So if if LCS was line item to get two hundred ninety thousand for the year, they would get one hundred and forty five now mm -hmm. in the second half in September. So mm -hmm. we're saying if that's one hundred and forty five thousand dollars for six months, that's roughly twenty four thousand dollars. So what we're saying, I'm not saying, I'm not what I'm interpreting is that we partially fund the first disbursement to cover until we receive the report and understand from KU and are able to make some alignments and adjustments as such. And if then we choose as a commission to render the rest of that first half, we can, as well as the additional other half of the 290,000 in that case. Okay. Um, so Vice Mayor Larson, um, I think my preference would be that we release the first half because at the time we get that report in May and get it on the agenda, we're going through budget at the same time, we probably, I'd be surprised if we have any sort of community conversation before July. Um, so my preference would be to go ahead and release that half and with the expectation that by August, we've got some sort of sense from a community standpoint as to how we're going to proceed. And this is Commissioner Sellers. I can see that. But I, I guess there's nothing keeping LCS from coming back in June as well as, or that could be a holdover until September which gives them more time 
and gives us more time to do community engagement around the report in that capacity. I do have a quick question for Melissa. I know you had stated there were a couple of grants that run out in June. Is it, would any of this funding from the city impact covering, you know, filling of a gap of those funds, of those grant funds? Melissa Botts, LCS. Um, yeah, I mean, we, um, you know, we've been through a lot of transition with our leadership, our executive leadership, and, you know, um, we can always, you know, funding's always going to be um, needed. And so um, a lot of our housing dollars fall off at that point. Um, some of our shelter service as well. And so any additional funding is, I mean, any funding that goes away is going to be really impactful for us. So. This is Commissioner Seller. So was it so essentially these funds would be covering some of that drop off from those grants? Um yeah. Mayor Shipley, I want to check in with uh, Commissioner Fickledy. Commissioner Fickledy, yeah, I mean, my, you know, again, maybe I'm just restless and want to get this thing moving, but, um, you know, I think we received the, the presentation in May, um, and, you know, I would, I, I would like to fund them through July, so fund full months, have them come present on July 5th instead of September 7th. Um, that's the week before the city manager puts out his budget, so it's before he start the budget. Um, and that would give us um, a report on on where that is, is going forward um, and whether where LCS is fitting into that and where the, the entire plan is going. Um, you know, we've, well, I'll just leave it at that. Am I opposed to September 7th? No, but, um, you know, I, I feel some more urgency than that. Mayor Shipley, um, then am I hearing after that discussion um, any motions? I'll give you a few seconds to think about it. This is a big deal. This is Vice Mayor Larson, and um, I'm not opposed to the funding, but, but I would seriously ask that we consider um, doing the six months. Um, it just seems to me the disruption uh, of the funding and the need for them to have some level of continuity and some um, their ability to make to to believe that you know they they've got this funding that they can have at least for six months that um, we we go that route that'd be my preference although I wouldn't obviously vote against any release of money but um, I would much prefer to see the six months. 
Commissioner Finkelai, what about if we do the six months funding, but ask them to report back on July 5th as a, as where they're, they're fitting in instead of yes. September 7th? Vice Mayor Larson, I'd be fine with that. Commissioner Littlejohn, I, I would also be fine. I, I'm also in the camp with uh, Vice Mayor Larson regarding six months. Um, I think that they they might have been planning on you know something of the sort given the agreement that's out in front of us. So um, I I'm glad that you added that component, uh, Commissioner Finkel and I, in, in terms of reporting. That's something that I I, I think I could agree with as well. This is Commissioner Sellers. I, I would just add this brief little tidbit that I think the conversation tonight really speaks to why this report is from KU is going to be critical to us moving forward with Built to Zero, Housing First, our whole model. Um, but it also speaks to the complexity of addressing housing initiatives and homelessness, which was what we are tasked as a commission to do. Um, so these difficult conversations are gonna be tricky and complex and they're not gonna be rainbows and butterflies. And so I do appreciate us having these deeper um, dive conversations and that this isn't the, this is definitely not the last um, on that piece. Um, but I do wanted to highlight in the presentation that um, Melissa and Lacey did um, gave us this evening is that we do need to look forward as we address Build to Zero and mitigating homelessness as much as possible, the need in our community for permanent, supportive, low-income housing and being proactive about those initiatives. I know that there are partners out there, partners um, who could do some deeper collaboration with LCS um, that are wanting to do that. And I look forward to when those presentations or those proposals come to us as a city commission, um, because I do believe they're coming because the time is now for us to do that. Um, but again, we have to start having these difficult conversations about mitigating homelessness and addressing housing initiatives in our city, because they're not gonna be easy there's going to be some competing values. There's going to be some comments that are made that are going to make people uncomfortable, but we have to have those conversations in order to get to the purposeful work and to move us into implementation and not cycling through conversations and strategies. So I look forward to what's happening in May. I look forward to the report um, that LCS is going to bring us in July because that gets us moving closer and closer to doing the thing that we said that we were going to do and eradicate in 2023. So um, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. But, um, I did want to make a quick uh, technical uh, note. I'm looking in the in the report in the agenda packet under the agreement for use of city general funds and section B under recitals. Uh, third sentence, it says the adopted budget provided, um, and this is $1,101.48 of a cents, which that when, I mean, I do fuzzy math, but 728,000 plus 343,848 doesn't equal 
101. So I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be a million 101, 848 dollars. So I mean, it's technical, but that did kind of stick out to me. But that's this all. is Danny Walters. We'll get that corrected, and we'll also change the date for the report in the agreement to uh, to July 5th. So, this is Commissioner Sellers. Thank you, Danny. All right, so I do think I still need a uh, motion. Commissioner Finkel, I, I would move to approve the 2022 Homeless Housing Initiatives Funding Proposal for the General Homeless Shelter Operations and authorize the city manager to execute the agreement with Lawrence Community Shelter for 2022 General Fund Award as presented in the packet with, with the change of the report back be, being on uh, July 5th. Mr. Uh, Mayor you guys can arm wrestle for it. Um, I'd win, but I, I, have let, a, I, have I let Vice Mayor Lawrence have it. I have a, okay. I have a first and a second. Uh, Commissioner Finkelday. Aye. Vice Mayor Larson. Aye. Commissioner Littlejohn. Aye. Commissioner Sellers. Aye. Mayor Shipley, I that passes five to zero. Um, I do want to maybe stop here and call Craig out if he's there. We've got two items that might be substantial left in our work session here, and we only have an hour. Um, so I want to take everyone's temperature um, about whether we think we can pull those two things off in an hour or, or check in with Craig on whether he thinks we can do that. I don't want something to get short shrift. Uh, City Manager Craig Owens, um, I, I think we can we can do the half hour version of each and if we need to extend then that would be good. Um, extending these out will take up more space on the next agenda. Uh, and we we do have things planned for that as well. So um, I think we could we could do a a rapid presentation. And there are some you know questions to pose to you that aren't necessarily easy, but perhaps maybe a little easier than the ones you just dealt with. Mayor Shipley, thank you, um, commissioners, and let's forge ahead um, as as well as we can. Uh, our next item is to receive the update on the multimodal transfer um, facility. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Adam Weigel, he's a department manager in the city, and I've got with me a couple members of our Wendell consulting team. I'll introduce briefly so you know them when they pop on the screen. We will be brief as we can in our presentation so we can get to uh, questions for you all. So Susan Sherwood is here with Wendell. Susan, if you just want to wave, she's project manager. And Scott Neal, well, Scott, you want to wave as our principal architect so with Wendell project. So I'll jump in here. Okay, we do have a few sustainability policy questions that we need your help talking through. I'll run through a timeline of this project is aligned with route redesign, a couple of the legal agreements that components of the project where we're at with budget and engagement. The Wendell team will talk through scope of work, site plan, floor plan, review renderings, and sustainability features of the project. They also have some information based estimates, cost breakdowns on different pieces of the project. 
and um, at the end of the presentation, to the sustainability policy questions. So I give this to you now, um, so you can think about them. They were in materials, so you've seen those, but go over them briefly. We've got a few things that will have some, uh, could have some budget impacts, some design timeline impacts. So obviously looking to try to make this as sustainable project as we can. Um, there are things we just need help deciding which direction we should go. So one of those is whether we want to plan for natural gas infrastructure in the facility. That would be used for the build, some of the building systems, water heater, HVAC, that sort of thing. Um, or if we want to go electric from the start. Uh, solar panels, something that came up through community engagement, certainly something that we can do, um, but challenged somewhat by cost and do have some pretty strong Electricity, you know, that the partnership with energy gets us a lot of energy already in this project. And then irrigation, um, we're obviously looking to do as low maintenance landscape as possible, indigenous drought tolerant plants, but do need to get those established in some way to prevent runoff. The site has quite a bit of slope to it. So your, your guidance on irrigation strategies. So it's worth noting that this project will need, uh, in order to keep it moving, we're, we're splitting the project into a few different bid packages, try to get pieces of the project moving quickly. Um, so we're aiming for May of this year to have a bid package go out related to the site. So earthwork, concrete, the site elements that we would need to be in place for buses to safely move on and off the site. Um, July is yes. Adam, you 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 kind of fading in and out. Like okay. Your microphone isn't right up there. If you could. Yep. Is this any better? Probably so. Thank you. Okay. Um. So in July is when we'd be bringing back the um, the site package. We have bids from contractors and seeking um, mission support to move select contractor for the site work. Uh, there will also be a site package, or a, sorry, a bid package for the building and its elements, and that will follow by about two months. So you see July 22 and September 22 um, underneath those first couple of bullets. So summer is when we're looking for construction to begin. Um, that is when we'll have staff and consultant resources to also shift back to downtown engagement and continuing to do work to help us select a site downtown. And again, looking at January of 2023 for being operational on building site. Do have a caveat on this page. Um, you know, we're certainly facing uh, likely supply chain issues um, with the building package following the site. Um, I think it'll be pretty challenging for the complete, everything to be completely done with the site in January. So um, we are still pushing the operational concrete that's needed, but very likely the building or platform elements might still need work. We started our final round of public engagement for route redesign this week. We'll be doing somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 different in-person and virtual meetings related to route redesign over the next six weeks. 
we plan to have those changes finalized by May. There are going to be two phases of route redesign um, due to there's the need to change some routes to align with start of KU's fall semester in August. Um, so some routes will change at that time. Other routes are dependent on facility being built. So um, those can't change until January. This site will be uh, somewhat similar to fire station number five near Iowa 19. So it'll be a city owned uh, facility and, and improvements. It will be potentially on KU Endowment owned land that the city will lease from KU Endowment, much like we do with fire station number five. Um, the site is currently University of Kansas owned. It's going through the legislative process right now. So that land transferred to endowment so that the city can then lease it from AU endowment, a long-term long -term lease. There will also be an MOU, university, just related to um, our agencies and how we coordinate transit and how we use the site. And my last bullet here, I just want to stress all those agreements would be in place before we be coming to you all asking you to select the contractor to spend the construction dollars. Budget-wise, uh, early 2021 internal estimates were around a little over six and a half million for both our billing site as well as downtown. Um, following our April 2021 concept development, we had estimates, um, initial estimates over 12 million. Um, we, we committed staff and consultant to set our CIP project budget at 10.2 million. Um, in January of this year, we were still over that. I see a range of about 11 and a half to 12 and a half million. That does include um, improvements to Crestline Drive, which is um, a portion of road that will be um, needed to access the property. Um, in the last couple of months, we have done some value engineering to bring that down. Uh, so total project cost is still not at our CIP um, budget, but we're, uh, but we're getting closer. So. 11 and a half million top end there. There have been three main community engagement uh, portions of this project. Um, I linked to the summaries here. Focus on the most recent engagement where we showed people the most up-to-date site plan, building floor plan and renderings, and asked what folks thought. We asked a few questions about access, about the different uses of the site, and um, aesthetics and got comments back. Uh, 56 people responded. You can see less than that responded to each individual question. One that might stand out is the last question related to aesthetics. Um, we pulled a few of the top concerns that came out of here. One of those was just the north facade, um, maybe not being as interesting as people hoped. Part of that is reusing a building, which has a lot of sustainability reasons to do that. Um, but some limitations on what we can structurally do. Um, solar we'll talk about, and I'm happy to answer questions about the restroom concern. So with this, Susan, I'll let you jump in. Sure. Good evening, everyone. This is Susan Sherwood. I'm with Wendell. Um, so I'm um, just reviewing what we've done um, from April of last year until um, this point in time. Um, 
some of you participated in some of our um, immersion process back on the beginning stages of this, where we did programming and preliminary design, basically trying to figure out what needed to go at the site, how big the building needed to be, and how big the transfer station needed to be. Um, we went through a public outreach process. Um, we have gone through the concept and schematic design phases for the building and the platforms and the site. Um, the site concepts, schematics, and 90% design of the site is um, just about complete. We just received comments back from the city relative to the site package um, actually today. So um, that's moving forward. Um, we've completed the traffic study at Crestline and Bob Billings. Um, we've completed cost estimating, value, including value engineering. And we went through several sustainability workshops with the consulting team and the city's team engaged in those workshops. Right, and then um, Scott, would you prefer to share for the next set of slides so that you can annotate a little better? Uh, yes, Scott Neal Wendell, uh, project architect for the um, for the project at hand. So yes, if I can share, that would be helpful. Um, Okay, Scott Neal from Wendell. Uh, just wanted to, it's easier for me to annotate so I can orient you. <clears throat> just give me one moment. Okay, so just to orient people uh, on the site plan, I'm going to go through the site plan, the floor plan. Uh, we're going to go through some imaging. And again, just to remind people, this is preliminary. This is by no means final engineering, but it is what has derived our cost estimate. Um, so to the north of the site, we have Bob Billings. We have Crestline Drive to the west. And we are talking about essentially what is for the intermodal facility the renovation of the western portion of the existing KU warehouse and that's the MOU that uh, Adam had spoken um, about. Is everyone hearing me okay? Um, this is a new laptop so uh, well a replacement laptop. All right uh, so uh, so with that as far as orientation um, we have two we have two components of the project. Uh, one is the building that I mentioned uh, that will that will hold the uh, the transit amenities, and then we have uh, if you can follow my hand here, uh, this is the bus transfer area where we'll, we'll we will have eight local bus slips uh, for um, for bus transfers at the at this site. Uh, we do in this hatched area here um, have room for inner city coach. Uh, so that would be your Greyhound or whatever, uh, whatever other carrier we're going to commission. Um, they're a little bit more flexible. It's a, it's a, it's the spot on the site where they can pull over. Uh, if people have luggage, they would, um, uh, they would, they would put it in the vehicle here in the bottom of the bus and then they would pull away. Uh, from, a, from a circulation point of view, 
um, buses would be coming in off of Crest Line. They would go into their bus slips. Is everyone seeing my hand okay? Okay. Uh, they would pull away. They would either go eastbound on Bob Billings or they would simply go back to the intersection. Uh, and then they would uh, they would go westbound. Um, we do in intermodal design and we do quite a few of these. We like separating cars and buses. We think that's safe. So we'll be utilizing the existing curb cut going into the facility, but it'll be changed dramatically where you would pull up. There's five spaces for drop off for people and then a car would exit um, back onto what is the current uh, curb cut and opening on Bob's on Bob Billings. And we'd be doing around uh, 17 uh, parking spots. Um, we're still working through that for overflow parking. Some of them would be double stacked, uh, as you can see in this location. And then uh, otherwise you can see in the light green overall that we have a pretty substantial amount of site work that's part of this project. If you have visited the site, there's a pretty substantial grade, which is basically what has set pretty much everything we're doing on site. So um, we need to meet universal accessibility on the project. So really every access point on this project is going to be uh, ADA compliant for mobility and universal design purposes. So people coming in this way would have an accessible path up to the, to the building um, from Crestline. And this may not be the final layout for how this access point is here. It could be a little bit more gradual. Um, but people have the opportunity to safely get up to the platform from this area. And then obviously we have an active bike trail. So a lot of what we're doing is catering to um, the fact that that's a rare asset in, in the work we do, that you have an existing bike trail. A lot of times we're connecting these facilities with bike trails. We are actually directly adjacent to it. Uh, it's hard to see on the screen, but we are salvaging as many of the trees on site as we can. Um, due to the nature of bringing this up to ADA compliance, you can see there's an awful lot of very tight lines here. That means that's a steep grade. It can still be planted, however. Um, but suffice it to say, we're doing a lot of planting work. Um, we're looking at outdoor seating areas for bikes. Uh, we do have another big driver on the site, and we'll get into this a little bit later when we talk about sustainability, but this is the detention um, basin. We do have to store water on site in the uh, event of a substantive rainfall, and we'll get a little bit into the water quality issue there. <clears throat> but beyond that, there's some boring things like a dumpster, uh, a generator, um, not really a lot more um, to add to that on the site plan, but um, but the good news is is it's a it's a it, it, we are reusing an existing building on site, and we were able to get the building to have um, to meet um, the stringent uh, areas of ADA, so all can really use this facility. From a floor plan point of view, 
Uh, I'll just hit on some highlights. We essentially have a uh, we have a public and private side to this to this building. Um, this this side is the public, and this is more the private. Uh, well, actually, I lied. The conference room is considered public, so one of my lines is a little bit off there. But um, so we really have uh, uh, City of Lawrence uh, area for running the facility. We have offices. Uh, we have a driver's break room. We have bus operator restrooms with access from the outside. And then moving into the public area, we have uh, a decent sized waiting room for a facility of this size. We're looking at accommodating you know, around 25 people um, with seating. There will be stand up um, bar height uh, as well as ADA height thing. Uh, 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 work areas. So if somebody um, wanted to read or look at their laptop, they'd have a direct view out to the buses. Uh, and then uh, we have a vendor area um, that is not defined right now on who would be using that, but we do plan on giving them um, you know, one of the things we had talked about is uh, the ability to possibly, um, uh, you know, could it could become a, a, a library, it could be somebody who's running it to do uh, maybe a super coffee. Um, that's pretty popular here in the Twin Cities, where if you do have a large bike community, um, that you'll find that uh, a simple a simple uh, food offering can go a long way. <clears throat> and of course, the, the highlight is this bike um, storage area that would um, give indoor storage for bikes. <coughs> um, that's been something that um, transit agencies have been incorporating. It can be a basic uh, revenue generator um, or just a basic convenience. Um, but secure secure bike uh, secure bike areas do tend to uh, uh, raise ridership in our experience, and especially when you are so so local to a uh, existing bike path, we encourage that. Um, this floor plan is a little bit larger than if we were going to build something brand new. Um, so there was a little bit of leftover um, space over here in future expansion, and currently that is going to be for uh, transit function for uh, transit amenities uh, around the uh, around the system. You know, basically shelters, benches, things along those lines, and of course the use can always change. Um, but this line here on the east side to the loading dock, this would be um, our, uh, our our separation with KU's facility. And then there's also some um, issues with how we uh, separate these buildings from a code compliance point of view. Well, one thing to note, uh, we do have uh, we do have four restrooms and uh, uh, and a uh, uh, a shower at this point. Um, one of the core lead tenants is uh, having the opportunity for people to do um, and not driving the ability to shower if they were biking or walking or running uh, to work. Um, so 
that's a nice uh, thing to have in there. Uh, here's some of the image work um, that we did. Now keep in mind, um, we can do a lot of things to the building. We just can't change the form of the building. So we can do new windows, we can put on different siding, um, but there are limitations. This is a very bare bones uh, building. It's called a pre-engineered building. There's not a lot of tolerance for changing it. It doesn't react well to changing its original design. Um, so what we've been doing with a variety of window placements and cutting away some corners um, in view one, this would be um, this would be where the bikes are located. Um, it's uh, potential that we can do some attractive lighting. Um, and if we if we end up working with one of the artists, it's potential that there could be um, this could be a pretty nice uh, corner to really uh, highlight in the design. Um, view two is what you would see if you were walking to the facility from the buses. Note on the south side, we do have shade canopies. Um, our climate analysis for the building says you're going to be into um, uh, high co higher cooling loads in the future. Um, so shading the southern exposure is going to be really important. And then view three is from the platform, <clears throat> uh, the bus platform and looking back at the facility. Uh, again, um, some different views. So these are actually what the bus canopies would be looking like. These are new construction. They are not exist. That is not part of the existing building. Uh, we just have some simple. Um, uh, we have some simple slope and forms. The idea is that the um, the water runs off the the upper canopy. Will be. Um, uh, collecting it on the on the intermediate canopy. Um, this intermediate canopy would be designed to uh, uh, for future photovoltaic array. Uh, one of the issues we run into these canopies is as much as you know we'd like to put PVs on everything. Um, for your uh, your climate, your known, your known wind gusts and what have you, uh, we wouldn't want to recommend putting um, what's equivalent of sails up on top of this uh, canopy. Now that wouldn't stop you from doing uh, something like some of the thin film technology is, is out there that uh, you, we could lay over the membrane. But either way, we're going to have um, whether the PVs make it into the project budget or not. Um, these these uh, canopies will be um, suited for photo uh, for future um, photovoltaics, um, having extra conduits and what have you. Um, one of the nice amenities to point out just quickly here is that these uh, little cantilevered um, pieces. That's your real time. Um, boarding information, which is uh, a really nice thing for uh, as a passenger amenity, <clears throat> you know, knowing what's the bus slip, what's the route, and you know, basically what what's the timing on that. Um, so that's also in the project. So we are not 
uh, we are not pursuing lead or envision as far as scoring goes. However, it did inform uh, the design. It really designs uh, most of our transit projects that we do. Uh, and I just wanted to highlight some of the important ones for you. Um, during construction uh, in Division One, that Sue and I will be working with um, <clears throat> with the City of uh, Lawrence on. We want a consideration of safety, noise, and vibration, and of course, light pollution. Uh, we're working with them on what uh, what can be recycled. Um, the nice thing about the current building is. When I say we're renovating it, um, pretty much we're keeping the slab, the concrete slab, where we're keeping the steel, but we'd be removing the roof and all the siding and the windows. So all of those have potential salvage uh, content. Uh, from the site, um, these are all the things we had been looking into. Uh, just hitting on some of the highlights, obviously we talked about bicycles. Uh, we found that um, those are uh, very transit friendly. It's one of the tenants that says, you know, are you, are you near public? Are you near quality transit? Well, this is quality transit, so that's, that's excellent. Uh, future electric car charging uh, would be included on site. Uh, from a site planting, um, we're keeping as many existing trees as possible. Um, we're also at the point in the project where we're getting into the specific species, but they are going to be low water indigenous um, planting. Um, some of those slopes, we're going to be using some uh, 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 some grasses, uh, some grass technology that has worked well in the past for low maintenance areas um, on other projects. Um, one in particular has been used on the on the backside of uh, of uh, 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 earthen dams and dikes. Um, so we know it works. Uh, I remember uh, trees in general. Um, well, we do have quite a bit of pavement. If we can, if we can get trees in proper locations, we can reduce the hot, uh, the heat island effect. And like I said, that's important since um, this and many other parts of the country are going to see a lot more cooling days in the next 20 years. Um, the building itself will have a recycling program. Uh, we're reusing an existing building, which is also better than disturbing new soil. Um, we're looking at water monitoring, uh, limited water use, low flow toilets. Um, as best we could, we're getting, um, taking strong daylighting and outdoor views into consideration. But again, it's the, the footprint is the footprint. So um you know we're working we're working with a with a building that we have to modify um but we were able to get um, decent daylight and outdoor views um and this is one that um this is speaks specifically to your um to the uh, uh the 2040 comprehensive plan um currently um, the systems are being designed for natural gas and um, 
but it is um, it has been it has been thoughtful for what does the switch out look like for future electrification, um, which I know is part of your plan. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we'll be doing some air quality measures as well. But back to back to the uh, uh, the electrification. I think that the um, uh, that will likely end up being a, a question, but um, and we can get into the specifics of what systems would have to be switched out. But um, for <clears throat> um, for our purposes today. Um, we're, um, we think that we're getting into, um, somewhere around, uh, in the most basic level, you would need a larger electrical service, which we can plan for now. Um, and then it's specific components of the design that we would have to switch out. Um, by the time and I think the the ask that that we're going to have is uh, what is the timing um, that would make sense for for the commission to rule on here. You want me to jump um, in, then, Scott, or you didn't keep going? What's that? No, I, you, I was going to say if you want to if you want to do the the budget, that's fine. All right, you're controlling the slides though, so you're going to have to move them for me. Um, oh, okay. Susan Sherwood of Wendell. Sorry, I keep forgetting to speak my name, so I apologize. Um, and it's a little bit late here, so I'm a little bit attention deficit, I think, at this point. But um, so let's just talk about the building costs a little bit on the engineering um, estimates that came in. I think Adam kind of did a pretty big high summary um, of the costs and how they've kind of morphed since um, the beginning of last year. Um, and also with the caveat that some of this is a little untested and a little unknown for us. I mean, we're, you know, Scott and I have been in this industry for a very, very long time. I can tell you with great sincerity that we are seeing all kinds of crazy things in the construction world right now, especially relative to supply chain issues. So although we would like to tell you, we believe these costs are very accurate. The real, the reality is they're very accurate absent all of the crazy things in the world right now. We have included in these costs some multiplier factors um, that we believe are industry standard at the time right now to account for COVID impacts and for some of the petroleum impacts we're seeing right now in the industry. And with that said, um, the latest estimates for the um, multimodal facility at Bob Billings it has come in around $8.7 million. You'll see the breakdown here. Um, the building canopy site um, is right around 6.8, I think, million, if I do the math in my head. Um, and then you add on to it on the soft cost being the owner's contingency and FF&E, as well as the public art. Um, and then the consulting fees, you're about at $8.7 million. Those numbers are about three weeks old now, I guess. So they're pretty recent and pretty accurate, we believe. Um, I don't know, Scott, if you wanna go to the next slide. So this slide talks about the downtown center. So these numbers are kind of an extrapolation of what we did last spring before we tabled the downtown center and decided to go back to site selection. I'm sure you, most of you, there's some familiar faces on this call, were there for that uh, meeting that we were at um, when we decided to go back and you know do a little bit more searching um, for the better for a better site. On um, these 
correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, I think we were about at 1.5 million at that time. We're about at 1.95 million. Now, this does not take into consideration the fact that we have not committed to an actual site. Um, we know what the program is. We know what the requirements are for bus service. Um, and it might, the configuration might be different based on whatever sites we come up with in the next phase of that project. But the new numbers that we are at right now are about 1.95 million. Um, and that's in today's numbers. Um, I don't think we're gonna restart the downtown search for sites until probably the middle of summer, it sounds like right now. So we, once we have a little bit more information for you, I'm sure Adam will give you more you know, updates as well. Scott, I think there's one last slide, I believe. Yes, so Crestline. So as part of, as we've, as we've worked through the design process over the last several months between KU and the city, um, it became apparent that there was a desire to investigate whether or not um, we needed to improve the conditions at the Crestline Drive intersection to um, the Bob Billings intersection um, in order to be able to ensure safe bus operations. And um, so a couple of things have happened. We've done a traffic study to indicate whether or not our turning lanes were adequate, which we know they are. Uh, but there are some other safety issues that are in consideration right now. The final details and recommendations from the engineers, the traffic engineers, have not been formalized yet. There was a presentation, I guess a discussion, I should say, between the city engineers and our consulting engineers last week. Um, we were charged with going back and doing a little bit more research on, on the final recommendations. So I expect those will come out in the next couple of weeks. We do believe though that the original estimate of $900,000 still holds true no matter what direction we go in with the options for improvements to Crestline. It's just a matter of them determining what actually needs to happen now versus what we want to happen now. Um, and again, it, whatever happens will be in the best interest of safe bus and pedestrian and vehicle movements within that area. And I think the next slide is the total for all three components being Bob Billings, the downtown site and Crestline. I think Adam alluded to you might be a little bit above what your initial project budget was. I think it was 10.2 million. We're around 11.5 million. Um, you know, the caveat for the commission too is these are early numbers that we're getting. Um, so these numbers include design contingencies, which are basically built into estimates so that, you know, the details of the engineering hasn't been completely worked out. So we don't know all the elements of what's going to go into the building or the sites. And therefore we add a factor into that to, to cover anything that might not be apparent to the estimators when they're looking at the designs. We expect that contingency to come down as the design develops. So we'll have more on um, estimates. I don't have the schedule right in front of me, but I believe we'll have more estimates at the end of April um, that we'll compare to. They may stay the same or they may start to shift a little bit. I'm hoping with the current environment, they don't shift in the upward direction, that they shift in the downward direction. But at this point, I think we're gonna have to play the game for the next 30 days until we figure out what that really looks like. The good news is prices of gas are coming down. That is very good for construction. Um, I think this is the last slide, correct? 
yes, yeah, so now we're into sustainability policy decisions. Um, I think Melinda's taking this slide or? Yes. Okay, there she is. Okay, sorry, I didn't see you there. Hello, I'm Melinda Harger, Interim MSO Director. Uh, so Adam and I were talking about these policy items and just based on some similar conversations we've had on other CIP projects in the last few years, um, I, I told him I'd kind of guide us through some of this discussion. So again, those three um, big areas we'd like some direction on include uh, the discussion on whether to plan this facility with natural gas. That's what's currently shown in the design, um, but also planning to make the conversion to electric as um, simple as possible in the future. So planning for that now, knowing that, you know, 12, 13 years, we do have that goal set for 100% clean renewable energy in all sectors. Um, so switching to um, electric now, it will have some operational um, budget increases. Um, we are hearing that the trend over the next 5, 10, 15 years is going to bring those costs closer together, um, the ongoing cost of natural gas versus electric, as you see more electrification. That's kind of the trend. Um, but it will have more capital costs right now and um, O&M costs for at least that next five to 10 years is, is what we're seeing. Um, so with the constraints we already have on the budget and some of the increases we're already seeing, uh, the recommendation is to go with natural gas um, and then just be set up for that change in the future. We would be looking at equipment that doesn't, I guess, have all the bells and whistles, you could say, um, because there's, it doesn't make sense to put something in that would have a 40-year lifespan if it's, you know, natural gas equipment. If we know we're probably going to uh, transition away from that um, equipment in the next 15 years, um, 12 to 15 years. So that's one of the big items, um, and I'll just list all three here, and then we can go wherever you'd like to with the discussion. Um, solar panels. Since right now, uh, looking at our strategic plan, we are at 98% renewable with our electricity. And given the limited amount of um, solar panels that we could put on this site, we can't put solar panels on the roof for structural reasons. Um, we weren't really seeing a, a big um, you know, benefit to necessarily putting those in at the current cost we would see for that. Um, but we'd like to bid it as an alternate and just See where those costs do come in. Um, I know when we uh, when we did the uh, Wakarusa wastewater plant back in 2015, we did solar as an alternate. We did some ROI calculations, and it looked like it was going to cost us about two and a half times for our electricity um, if we went that route. Solar has come down though, um, the price of that equipment, and so we would like to bid it as an alternate and and see if it is something that we could include uh, and bring back to the commission a recommendation for that. And then the other um, item for discussion is irrigation. Um, I know that was a discussion with the police facility, so wanted to make sure we got um, commission input on that. We don't really have an irrigation policy yet, but that's one of the things we'd like to see as we get into policy related to our environmental sustainability goals um, that align with the strategic plan. So again, we'll, we're looking at more drought resistant plantings, 
um, but there will need to be some irrigation for establishment. We do have grade conditions there. We don't want to deal with a lot of runoff from the site and erosion. Um, so our options are to go with um, potable water for the irrigation or um, not install an irrigation system. And we would have to look at other methods, either um, trucking in probably wouldn't make sense for um, bringing in water, but um, perhaps similar to what we did with the police facility, you'd be looking at hoses and, um, and running that from hose bibs. Um, we do have some concerns with the accessibility across our sidewalks and our walks if we have hoses strung out across the site. So those are some of the concerns. Our recommendation would be to go with um, potable water here um, to help with the establishment of the vegetation. So I guess I will just stand for any questions you have or um, we can start the discussion on the sustainability components if you'd like. Uh, Mayor Shipley, I did want to go back a slide and ask about Crestline. <clears throat> um, <laughs> uh, I appreciate on every level that KU is working with us in, on this land, um, but all of Crestline south of 15th, aka Bob Billings, is campus. Are they in any way interested in helping us with that cost, being that it's getting regular campus traffic at this time and not the bus traffic we will be expecting? That's question one. And question two is, can we use that 900,000, maybe not from this fund that the taxpayers um, specifically wanted for you know, bus transfer facilities, but rather, I don't know, CIP project money, or was that what you guys were already thinking? Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager, I can start. Um, I mean, the, the discussion is about Crestline. It is, you're correct, a KU-owned road, owned and maintained road. Um, and we have been discussing with them, um, trying to come to some agreement on the right way to get that road up to speed and be safe for for bus traffic in that area. Um, I know part of the traffic engineering study was looking at the um, current quality and, and what kind of treatment it would need. Um, uh, as far as, you know, are we talking for reconstruction? Are we talking, does it just need to be striped different? Does it need mill and overlay? So I think some of that is still unknown um, until that, that report is complete. Um, but I would say those discussions with KU are ongoing about the best way to um, to partner together, you know, it's, it's a project that definitely benefits both of us and our and our um, you know joint uh, our coordinated bus systems. So um, we are working through that. Mayor Shipley, any other questions for staff at this time? <laughs> okay. Um, oh, this is yeah, questions. Oh, go oh, go ahead, uh, Vice Mayor. Yeah, this is Vice Mayor <clears throat> Larson, and I had a couple of questions. Um, on the building layout, you should a conference room. Is that going to be available to the general public to reserve for use? Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. Um, I think we, I think that's definitely an option. We, we certainly envision it for uh, public transit advisory committee meetings. I think we definitely Im imagine it being used for um, engagement 
that we need to do related to transit projects for, for the city and KU. And I think in general, um, we're looking to try to program this space with a lot of different community partners. Um, and that would include the conference room, but also that vendor space, um, also our little waiting area, trying to bring partners into that area. So um, I would imagine as long as it didn't conflict with some of the transit, like the regular transit uses and things related to our engagement, that we would make that available. Now, I'd appreciate the consideration for that because I could see neighborhoods having possibly having a place to meet, especially in that part of the town, part of the city, um, I think would be a good option for them to look at. Um, the, uh, I also saw offices in there. Does that mean we're going to move city staff there? So Adam Weigel, transit and parking manager. Um, so our current staff is at the New Hampshire parking garage. Um, when I arrived a couple of years ago, we had two full-time staff and two part-time staff. Um, and that staff has grown. Um, we've, we, there's no way we would have had capacity to do this project, the electric bus projects, um, the type of route work we're doing. We, we were under understaffed. So we've, we've shifted more of our um, transit dollars towards that and federal dollars towards that so we can have appropriate staffing. Um, we are at um, five, FTEs now with an intern as well. So that's really pushing our space in that New Hampshire garage. Um, the other piece that came from that is we knew we wanted customer service element here. Um, so that's staffing that is budgeted and it, it became kind of a strange uh, idea to have one single staff member out here without the remaining transit staff support. So yes. Thank you. Um, just a couple more questions. Um, can somebody explain to me again, um, I don't know if I caught all this as to why we're the first option was to use natural gas. Was it just a cost uh, consideration? Yes, Scott, you want me to take that or you want to take that? I I, I can do it and then you can you yep. can you can, uh, you, you can jump on that too. Um, so um, I mean we're we're open to either. Um, it, this is a this is a small facility. Um, uh, electrification is uh, is is one of our it's one of our business uh, lines right now. Um, so, and it is an emerging technology and how you uh, on, on how you handle that. Um, one of the right now, um, what we're seeing is that. And, and what we'd be recommending is this um, uh, this building is um, based on its size and where we are with the technology that it might be in your best interest to wait. Um, and then, you know, we'd, we'd have the correct service size and the transformers and the things to electrify. And then, um, and then go back and switch out those pieces of equipment um, at a later date, um, and you know, keep in mind, um, you know, they're not, you're not, you're not seeing a lot of, um, you know, if we waited the useful life on the equipment, it would still fall into your, your 2040 plan. Scott, my question was, why did we choose natural gas to start with? Is it was it an, the fact that electric is more expensive, or, or what? Yeah, at this at this time, at, at this time, it would 
are what we're estimating. We have not done the deep dive into it to be around the hundred thousand uh, dollar add to the project. It's um, capital add, which isn't a lot, and it's it's not that we couldn't do um, electric right now, um, but and we have not done the payback on the uh, on your rates, but it would certainly be more expensive than using gas at this current time. Thank you. Right, and to add to that too, there's a, so we have at Wendell, not only are we transit experts, we have an entire division of our company that does nothing but energy management. And we consulted heavily with that group on this building in particular, on what the best path forward for you today would be. And although everyone's moving in the direction of electrification or alternative fuels, obviously right now, it's their opinion that the technology has not caught up to a building of this scale yet. So where they're doing a ton of electrification of um, boiler systems and things of that nature, um, it's on very, very large scale hospitals, universities, things of that nature, where the cost of the capital improvements, um, they can capture that back in operating payments because of the volume of the buildings. This building on the scale it's at, the technology just doesn't, it doesn't compute. Um, and it, you know, when we talk about it, but um, the other thing that they mentioned to us, which I thought was really intriguing was that as the, as the country pushes towards this direction, there's a lot of incentivizing for people to switch over. And so in within the lifetime of the systems you're gonna have in the building, they believe you're probably going to have an opportunity to work with your um, utility companies for them to actually incentivize you to switch out to electric and save yourself a couple hundred thousand dollars and get better rates in return on that as well. And basically what they said was in today's terms of design, although a carbon footprint impact may be there, depending on how you buy your power, right? Um, it probably isn't going to balance for you unless you're truly making the decision from a policy perspective. Okay, thank you. And I just got one more, and I apologize sure. for stressing this out. Um, in the future, when you bring this to us in the future, I'd really appreciate it if you could divide out some of those soft costs that you're showing where you've got owner contingency plus FFE together. Could you divide that out as well as the engagement and design costs? Um, if you could divide those mm -hmm. out so we can see those on separate lines, I sure, sure would appreciate it. Yeah, we certainly have that data. We can, we can help. That's all I've got. Thank you, Mayor. I'm surprised. I thought you might bring up the LEED certification because um, I know you're such a great champion of it, but I want to clarify um, in your slides about the LEED certification, you said that we're not equivalent. We're obviously not certified or not equivalent, but has elements of LEED considerations. I want to clarify that. Yes, that, that would be accurate. Um, we, are not, we are not pursuing the formal process on either um envision or lead um but we did have uh, a workshop for both and agreed on what of the core tenants we were going to have um as a matter of course um a facility like this and reusing um an existing building um we we feel 
confident that you would you would achieve lead certification. Um, I can't speak to the specifics of whether or not you would hit silver. Um, but you would you would make you would make um, you you would be in good shape with certified. This is Vice Mayor Larson. Um, uh, thank you for bringing that, that up, Mayor. And, and my concern, anytime we talk about lead cert certification, is not that we actually go for the certification; that we just make sure we employ the elements of it. Because going for the certification is very expensive, and we can get the same result but not spend that money just by um, having the elements. And we agree with you, Vice Mayor. You know, I could. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Scott. Scott Neal from Wendell again. One one thing I uh, it's still not complete, but we do and have run a high level um, energy model for this. So um, basically, that model is focusing on how this building is going to perform long term, as well as um, these things like the daylighting views. And the sight lines, um, so we'd be, you know, we'd be willing to share that um, once we have that a little further along. But it does appear this building, with what we've explained and what we're doing, is is going to perform better than the industry average. Mayor Shibley, let me just uh, respond to that super fast, and then we'll need to uh, check in with Sherry and um, extend our time possibly. Uh, thank you, Vice Mayor, for pointing that out. I did mean, um, I did understand that it wasn't the certificate. We, we get that. Um, but you have very consistently championed that what we do is equivalent, not just pieces of it, but equivalent. And I was sort of hearing them say that they're not hitting all of the high bar that we've been holding people to, um, even ourselves, even this evening. Um, so I just wanted to be clear that he was meaning, and he said, it's not equivalent. There are elements that they're not going to make, or we're not going to make. Um, and that's a little different than what you have championed in the past, I felt like. Well, if this is Susan Sherwood from Wendell. So let me clarify on, on what Scott just said. So there are different levels of lead certification. So those who are on the call who might not be familiar with it, there's basic certification, there's silver, there's gold, there's platinum. I mean, we're doing a $400 million giant facility in downtown Washington, D.C. right now that's going to be platinum certified. It's 100% electric vehicles, 300 electric vehicles in store storage for them, and they have composting toilets in them. They're going to hit platinum. So, But they're paying an exorbitant price because that was the goal that they set for this project. Um, and that's costing them on, on different levels, right? Um, and in this case, you know, with the budget constraints and with the, with the simple constraints of reusing a building that does, does not have a lot of capacity in it for us to play with it, um, we believe you'll hit certification. If, we, if you said to us, we wanna go and get certified after construction is done, we believe we could get you certified as a lead building. You probably, we don't know if you would hit silver or not. Maybe you would. Um, we have a lot of silver buildings that we've we've built over the last you know 20 years. Um, but um, at least we know that you're hitting the best practices and sustainability right now. Um, if you wanted to go beyond that, we'd have to assess what that would mean to your budget. 
and to our ability to be even able to implement it, quite frankly. Uh, Mayor Shipley, thank you. And, and uh, Vice Mayor, you might want to comment on that here in a minute, but I do want to get to Sherry and, and make sure um, we don't run out of time before we continue our real discussion and do public comment. Sherry? Yes, this is Sherry Riedemann, City <laughs> Clerk. Um, you will finish this item because it's already started. And then when it's complete, if you want to extend, you will need to make a motion to extend it for a specific period of time. Mayor Shibley, thank you for reminding me of that detail. I did space that out. Okay, um, were there any other comments, questions, responses before we go to comment? Wait, so we're, this is Commissioner Sellers. We're on questions and or comments or, okay. Good question. Okay. I have two quick questions. One, and they're pretty basic, hopefully. Um, in the rendering of the design of the building, storm shelters, are those located bathrooms? Do we have designated storm shelter areas in the main building? Yes, the, uh, the, the bathrooms would be considered uh one of those areas um the if you look at the floor plan right now the uh the hatched area of the building that's probably our uh our best recommended area as a storm shelter because that will be uh, a reinforced masonry um hard wall area because that's where um, the mechanical mezzanine is going to be located. Uh, so, and that will be in the center of the building with really no windows. So the thought is that would be for, um, some potential chair storage and maybe a couple, um, a couple things. Um, but the primary purpose would be to shuttle, um, people into that area as a, as a storm shelter. Thank you. This is commission. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. And this is Commissioner Sellers. So, and since we're using the ADA plan to map this out, the pathway to that would then be able to accommodate, would be ADA compliant to accommodate traffic that way. Yes. Uh, Scott Neal from Wendell, the, uh, the facility will be, um, will be completely ADA accessible. And then this is Commissioner Sellers. Um, I had another question. There was a, it may have been, I can't remember when it was, but it was talking in regards to the need that the need of the building would, there would be a need to accommodate a cooling, more cooling than heating. So in this, and I may be getting ahead of myself, but were there recommendations somewhere as to, you know, sustainable cooling systems or options around that in order to account for, for that piece? Uh, yes, Kanil from Wendell. Um, that, that was what I was speaking to with the, uh, with the overhangs on the south and west sides of the building. Those are your high heat gain. Those are what's called your high heat gain portions of the building. So by shading them, you are effectively um, reducing your cooling load requirements and the the last piece to that being we we always recommend when we see something like that that a a, a, a high albedo roof which means uh, 
a low a, a light colored roof would also be recommended. So what it, what is telling us is that um, your your heating days um, are going to flip flop. You know we're going to be a majority cooling in the next thirty years. Commissioner Sellers, thank you. Mayor Shipley, any other questions? <clears throat> All right. Uh, Sherry, is there anyone there in the room who wants to make comment? No, Mayor. Um, is there anyone online? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Michael Allman. Hi, good evening. I'm Michael Allman. I am still here as well, and I commend you for slogging on through. Um, I would like to challenge you to think of the costs for this facility in a different way. For one thing, um, transit is one of our best solutions for the climate crisis, um, for dealing with uh, transportation costs, which is about 33% of our emissions, but buildings um, are a larger uh, sector. Buildings in the United States account for about 39 or 40% of our primary energy use and about 35 to 38% of our greenhouse gases. So if the, the, the city is still working on our climate action plan, the climate action plan is dragging on and on and it's been dragging on for years. We're getting close, but you don't have to have a completed adopted climate plan to actually act to save the climate. And I, I have to point out as the climate plan drags on, the climate crisis is not waiting. It's actually accelerating. And every day there's more indication of that. The latest being both the North and the South Pole right now are anywhere from 50 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit above the norm. Um, that you would be wise not to worry, for instance, about the appearance of the building. Don't put a lot of money in that. Industrial chic is fine. Don't worry about that. Put your money investment in energy efficiency. And don't say that we'll go to electric in the future. If the climate crashes on us, and who knows what that's gonna mean and how soon, but it's happening faster, there's not gonna be much of a future to, to deal with. So I would suggest that you very, very diligently consider your goal, which is only 13 years from now, there's no reason you can't move that goal up to 100% um, renewable energy and do it with heat pumps. Heat pumps are, it depends on you know, the study and the agency and whatever, but the numbers indicate that heat pumps will uh, eliminate 45 to 72% of greenhouse emissions, according to the University of Kansas, University of California, Davis. There are other studies, but heat pumps are so much more efficient than natural gas. So your operational costs immediately would be lower. Granted, Time. the capital costs would be more, but think of the climate costs more than the capital costs at this point, please. Thank you. 
That's all the comments, Mayor. Great. Um, thank you, um, Mayor Shipley. Let's bring it back to the commission. Um, and in the interest of time, or what that's worth at this point, um, <laughs> uh, I, I I just want to go ahead and say, like, it's. Um, I was a little surprised by this, I, I, and maybe I'm going to be an odd man out, and I'm going to be the extremist. But I just I feel like we've made a real commit. We've said we've made a real commitment uh, to um, renewable energy, and then to not do it in a project like this is, uh, it's going to be hard for me to justify um, my own job if I don't uh, direct staff to um, do the most they possibly can in this situation. Um, uh, even in the context of conversations we had earlier in the evening. So um, I, I know that it's an extra expense, um, I, but I would also say like, the money you waste retrofitting is also not worth it. So I understand the logic, um, but I, I, this is just, we've said time and again that sustainability is what's important to us. I can't um, suggest doing anything other than the most we possibly can. This is Vice Mayor Larson. Is this, a, this isn't an item where we can provide direction, is it? It's a work session? I don't think we're making decisions on this or am I got that wrong? Oh no, they're, excuse me, Mayor Shipley, they're asking us three very specific questions about direction that they need. Um, I mean, you all do what you want, but I'm gonna answer his questions. <laughs> He's asking me and then three of them, uh, natural gas or electric? Yeah, electric. Uh, solar panels? Yeah, solar panels. Um, not only whatever Evergy, we're not even talking about what our local um, solar partners could do in terms of partnership. Um, and since I'm on it, I already know that I'm the most extreme on irrigation. Nothing bothers me more than wasting potable water on grass. I'm going to get that you want to um, start um, a grass to keep it surviving, but the idea that we still irrigate so that we can have lovely green flat fescue just bothers me no end. So I already know that I'm gonna be odd man out there, but I'll just say my opinion while he's asking. This is Vice Mayor Larson. I just thought we were gonna get all those costs comparisons. That was part of the, the um, process that we would see those cost differences and make a decision at that point. I'm sorry, Mayor Shipley. I thought in one of these cases it was going to be an alternate bid. Um, thank you, Melinda, for nodding at that. The other ones, I think, were specific direction. You're probably not going to waste time on it if we don't have an opinion about it, is what I'm gathering. This is Commissioner Sellers. I'm looking at the slide. This is policy guidance. So I took it as we were. Our decisions made in these three areas would guide where the bidding would go with this specifically as it relates to the bid alternative for the solar panels. So I've been wrong before. This is Vice Mayor Larson, I just would want to see the cost comparison. 
between them, between all these these issues. Melinda Harger, Interim MSO Director. Um, we could look at doing an alternate for irrigation. We did that on the police facility. So we could bring you real costs on that as well as the solar, solar panels. The challenge with the natural gas versus 100% electric buildings is um, we're looking at additional design costs um, to look at both options and to model that. Um, you can't really do an alternate bid for that. So um, they've They've done part of the design, the building design. Um, Wendell can confirm, I think at about 30% is where they're at right now. So there's some schematic designs of what that looks like, some early selection um, of equipment type, not to the point of specifying detailed sizes or anything like that. Um, but that's where they're headed next, to knowing which path to go down, whether it's go with um, all electric or go with the natural gas, knowing um, that the intent is to have a pretty simplistic system, knowing we're looking to switch in about 12 to 13 years to electric. And Wendell could speak to this. I, I can't remember the amount they threw out, but um, maybe it was 10, 15,000, something like that. But it's a substantial cost to do the, the study that would tell us which way to go, um, return on investment and, and all that. And really it's gonna, they know that um, electric will cost more. Um, it could be anywhere in that 50 to $100,000 range. Yes, so Melinda, we, this is Susan Sherwood from Wendell. I can confirm we did get actual hard capital costs back from our engineers just a few hours before we got on this call actually, relative to the difference. Yeah, the I was price. gonna run through those too. Um, so yeah, go ahead, Scott. You can uh, take them through. That this is this is just equipment costs. In order for us to give you a comparison of gas versus electric, we would have to go in and study and model the actual how the building behaves, and plug in your rate structures for electric and your rate structures for gas, and you know, and figure out you know how that works together. And it's an intense. We can do it. We have the technology to do it. We have the engineers to do it. It takes time and it costs money. And our advice to Melinda and her team and Adam and his team was to look at this more holistically from a policy perspective. It's, it's going to cost you more money. We know it's going to yeah. cost you more money to operate, but um, we could do that modeling if you really wanted it, um, Commissioner Larson, just letting you know. So um, Scott Neal from Wendell. Yeah. Uh, so listening to this conversation, everything that has been stated here is doable. Um, and of course we have an opinion. There was a tug of war within our our company. Um, you heard the word heat pump. Um, that is mostly correct. Um, heat pumps have um, some, um, some issues associated with them in this particular climate. Um, they they do not work well in in heating loads. <clears throat> um, so uh, there was a debate. It's not that they can't work, um, but to to say that's um, exactly what you need is hard to is hard to say without um, without actually reviewing the specific need. 
Um, but right now, the HVAC system is uh, <clears throat> it's a it's a hot water loop. Uh, the the boilers are gas fired. Um, so basically, all we be doing is switching out those with uh, electric boilers. So it would be basically heating hot water with electric. Um, at that point, it would be fully electric, and there's different options and controls. But there, um, we'd probably have to go to two boilers that we would accommodate, and those are going to be 60 kilowatt um, boilers each. Um, same with plumbing, we basically just have to switch out the water heater. We wouldn't be heating the water with gas. We'd be going to electric, and that, that's around 55 kilowatts. Um, and then we'd have to have an increased service that would um, probably be more along the lines of a 500 amp service now. So that would also be larger. The reason I'm explaining that is that so 60 kilowatts, 55 kilowatts, that's all great. But what we don't know is what the kilowatt hour conversion is. And that's when you actually have to look like you're heating in your cooling days. And by that, that's what the study would really be pulling out. Is this, this is a high level assumption. The numbers I gave you is no way um, the uh, a final number, but every one of those things have to be looked at from the idea of what happens over time. The reason we're not going wholeheartedly and saying, um, uh, yes, at face value, it's very important to, um, to do things right now, um, this building has a carbon footprint. It's not nearly um, the size of um, some of these larger projects that we're seeing electrification coming in, you know, coming into its own right now. <clears throat> so that's our only hesitancy. It's it's a good idea. It's it's a hundred thousand dollar idea right now. Um, I advocate for those things. I can't tell you how to specifically spend your 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 money on those things, though. And and we also know that um, everything I just said is probably going to be different in the next five to seven years. <laughs> um, but but those the you know just just be aware of like the systems and things like that. You can't just say any one particular system is going to solve your your situation um, or solve whatever it, it works as a as a um, it, it works as a complete unit with did we shade the southern exposure did we um, did we um, do the right roof color <clears throat> have we done everything from an external point of view before we even talk about the systems then of course what does the future hold with heating and cooling days so those are all the things that we have to be cognizant of before we answer questions like this. And we have not done that part of the study um, because, uh, you know, electrification um, is kind of its own uh, separate project. Uh, this is Commissioner Littlejohn. Uh, I, since you're asking my opinion, I would go with just to run down the list. I would go with natural gas right now with the capability to switch to electric because I, my personal opinion is if we went with electric right now, 
we're so far ahead of the curve that it will become more efficient anyway in the next five to 10 years, we'll have to switch it anyway. So um, we might as well just go with the cheaper option now and then be able to switch it later. Um, solar panels, yes. Um, irrigation strategies, I would probably go no irrigation. I also have the aversion to potable water as well, finding some drought tolerant plants, making it as seamless as possible if we can go ahead and do that. So that's just me. Commissioner Finkel, I, I second Commissioner Little John's comments for whoever needs it. This is Commissioner Sellers. Um, I think my head is still spinning because we've spent a lot of time this evening talking at sustainability. Um, and what is and is not in policy, um, which, hello, we are the policy leaders for this. So um, I hope the teachable moment for this and my fellow commissioners is that we have a lot of plans and CIP projects that we expect things to live up to, but they are not in policy. So I'm just going to leave on that note. Hang on, sorry about that. I couldn't get my... It's 11 o'clock. I, I couldn't get my mute off. Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have seen that. I apologize. Um, you know, it's just so important to understand what the costs are before you make such a huge decision. Um, and you're asking us to, to make this decision without any data as to what it actually is. So I'm, I'm frustrated by that. Um, just given what we know now, I could back what uh, Commissioner Littlejohn as well as Finkel and I is saying, um, that would be fine because I do agree that five years from now, we don't know what's gonna be available from a technology standpoint. Um, but I'm, like I said, I'm just frustrated that this was brought to us in this way. Um, and that I would love to have a much deeper conversation of the electric versus natural gas and why, because I'm still not quite fully understanding why um, there's this decision point like this. Um, and I would like to still have that conversation once we're done um, down the road here in the next few weeks. Uh, so I, you know, I could uh, follow with um, the Commissioner Finkeldine and little John on this, but understand that I'm extremely frustrated that we're, we've been brought with this decision at this time without any data. Uh, Mayor Shipley, uh, I think I'm needing to look at Melinda and Adam, I, I gather. Um, did you get consensus out of that? Melinda Harger, MSO Interim Director. Um, 
I'm gathering that we will look at the solar panels as a bit alternate, but it seems like those are very favorable. Um, irrigation, I'm hearing no to the irrigation. So for establishment, um, I'm not quite sure what approach we'll take. We'll see if we can, maybe we'll have to uh, truck in trucks or something like that, um, or if host bids would be an option. So we'll have to look at that slope and see how we can establish vegetation to prevent erosion, because um, that could also create some sustainability challenges um, with runoff. Um, I'm hearing maybe a little bit more in favor of the, the natural gas. So it's a little split, um, but knowing that we'll have uh, more efficient systems coming with um, new technology in the future, as well as some options to potentially have others pay for that. Um, that additional cost. And what we have right now is an approximate 100K capital cost with increased operating costs. If we were to go with electric, uh, we can't pinpoint what percentage higher um, at this time for electric as an ongoing cost, but we do have that round number. So if, if that's accurate, we will proceed in that direction. And I, I definitely um, I'm taking note of the additional information in the future you would like to see when we bring these projects to you with these options. Um, we're we're going to need to look at this on every facility project that we do um, here on out on whether we're, we're going with electric or natural gas and um, putting the dollars in to study that early in the design will be something we'll want to look at. Did I capture it okay? <laughs> Uh, Mayor Shipley, Adam, are you good? Do you have what you need? Yes. Yeah. The erosion, which Melinda brought up, is something I was thinking of as well. So we just we have, you know, we're. I don't think the intent is to put down any lawn um, vegetation. It will be indigenous. When we talk about grasses, uh, we're not talking about like lawn grasses, but we have to get that established somehow. So that'll just be um, the part we have to work on without irrigation. So we'll, we'll just work on those strategies. Mayor Shipley, thank you. It sounds like everyone's got what they need. Um, we finished that item then. Uh, do we want to extend for our last item, which is the strategic plan update from Connected City Outcome Team plus the City Manager's Report? <clears throat> Commissioners, do I have a motion or a general feeling of discontent? <laughs> This is Vice Mayor Larson. I would prefer to. I would prefer not to um, cover that next subject, Sarah, so for another time to give it the right um, attention we need to give it. Commissioner Littlejohn, yeah, um, um, I think I'm sensing I'm a little bit spicy. So, um, uh, uh, yeah. Mayor Shibley, uh, can someone uh, motion to not to? Uh, table or move that item, but maybe just get through the manager's report and the calendar and move on. Commissioner Finkeldie, I move. Uh, on the, is the work session, do we have to defer that item? Yeah, you defer. Oh. Uh, I'd move that we defer the strategic plan update on connected city outcome. Sherry, do we need to add five minutes or whatever? Yeah. 
I mean, any items that you don't hear tonight will automatically go to the next meeting or the date you want them. All you really need to do is say how long you want to extend the meeting to get through these remaining items. And you hear, I mean, do you want to go 10 more minutes to just do the, the final two and that will, then the other item will get moved? Is that five Mayor, minutes, 10 Mayor minutes? Shibley, that's what I am thinking. We may not okay. get to 10 minutes, but we have it. Okay. We have a motion to extend the meeting 10 minutes. Commissioner Mingle, I second. Mayor Shibley, I have a first and a second. Commissioner Sellers? Aye. Commissioner Finkelday? Aye. Vice Mayor uh, Larson? Aye. Commissioner Littlejohn? Aye. Mayor Shipley, aye. Uh, that will bring us to commission items. Pass. <laughs> I am actually going to do a short one, you guys, because um, I think that I'm someone's pulling an April Fool's joke, which of course will be before our next um, meeting, which will be on the fourth or fifth. Um, I don't know if y'all can see this, but this is the postcard that the city sent me of all people for sidewalks. Um, and I just laughed so hard. I, <laughs> I can't tell you. So I just wanted to share that with you. Uh, for many reasons, including that I famously have brand new sidewalks. Um, any other commission items? Okay, city manager's report. Uh, city manager Craig Owens, uh, there are only four items on there. The first one is just to make sure that we're being very transparent, even though it was a small um, uh, error, we wanted to make sure you had the updated information on the ambulance purchase that we had previously reported. Um, and the rest is good, good news on the sales tax, which I think you've already kind of been sensitized to. Um, and other than that, um, lots of future agenda items. Uh, and one more now. So happy to answer any questions. Mayor Shipley, any questions? This is a public comment item. Sherry, are there any people? No people. Uh, is there anyone online who would like to comment on the city manager's report? There's no comment on this item. Uh, Mayor Shipley, great. That brings us to the calendar. Any items people need to bring up in the calendar? Okay. Um, I think that brings us to the part where someone tells us to go home. This is Vice Mayor Larson. I move to adjourn. Commissioner Littlejohn, I second. Mayor Shipley, I have a first and second. Vice Mayor Larson? Aye. Commissioner Littlejohn? Aye. Commissioner Finkeldye. Aye. Commissioner Sellers. Aye. Mary Shipley. <laughs> Aye, that passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. Good job.